Hey everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And this could be the last time you hear me recording an intro in quite some time. Um, I'm recording this on Thanksgiving, four days before I go to trial. The podcast is going to come out on Tuesday, a few days from now, which is the second day of trial. And things go badly, it could be a long time before I hear from you again, or you hear from me. We do have some recorded episodes that we'll continue to post. We might try and do something where we can continue the podcast with me in prison, but it'll be complicated. So I just want to give you a heads up that could happen. But, you know, in many ways, I'm, I'm really glad to be introducing this podcast because Duncan Watts, a university professor at the University of Pennsylvania, is in many ways the intellectual foundation for direct action everywhere. And a lot of people don't know that. And you should know that because his work is absolutely transformative. So back in, I think it was 2014, I spoke at the Animal Rights Conference for the first time and I gave a talk called, What If Everything We Know About Social Change Is Wrong? And there are a lot of points I make in that talk. That disruption is crucial to social change, that grassroots movements are much more powerful than formal institutions and driving change. In fact, formal institutions often deter change. It's the grassroots activists who really push it. But maybe the most important one is the idea that when we think about social change, and frankly, even when we think about the human condition, too often we think about individuals instead of relationships and networks. And that's what Duncan's an expert in. He's a network scientist who started out as a physicist studying the coordination of crickets chirping in the middle of the night and went on to do some of the most, frankly, mind-blowing experiments and studies in the history of sociology. And I think you're gonna find this conversation as interesting as I did. So without further ado, here's Duncan Watts. Duncan, it's been a few years and I'm incredibly excited to speak to you. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people or activists don't know your name, despite the fact that, I checked again recently, your paper in Nature from 1998, I think has 40,000, 7,000 plus citations. And I compared this to the most recent economics Nobel winner, Robert Wilson. His entire career <laughs> led to 30,000 citations. You have one paper that is 50% more citations than the most recent winner of the economics Nobel. And very few people who are working in the areas of social change know your name. And, and that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the podcast, because not just because your work has been influential within the academy, but because it has tremendous, tremendous applications for activists. So um, I want to start with that paper, actually. Okay. Tell me what a small world network is and, and why it matters. So uh, uh, it's funny, I'm teaching this class right now to undergraduates uh, on network science and introduction to network science. So I'm actually teaching all of this stuff uh, that, that I worked on, you know, 20 odd years ago. So a small world network is inspired by uh, this uh, idea of the small world problem, uh, which many people know as six degrees of separation, the idea that everybody in the world can be connected to everyone else in the world through just six degrees. So you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows uh, somebody el anybody else in the world where the length of that chain is supposed to be not longer than six degrees. And so this was an idea that has been around for... Uh, you know, about a century, actually, uh, in popular culture, and, you know, poets have speculated about it, and uh, writers have speculated, and playwrights have speculated about it. But back in the 1960s, uh, a psychologist called Stanley Milgram, uh, who is very famous for other work that he did on obedience to authority, 
did this very innovative experiment in which he uh, got a few hundred people uh, from uh, Boston and from Omaha, Nebraska, to try to get a letter to uh, a friend of his who was a, a lawyer uh, who lived just outside of Boston uh, in Sharon, Massachusetts. And uh, Milgram gave these few hundred people instructions uh, about uh, how they were supposed to get this letter to the person. And it, it was a little bit unusual because they, even though they had a lot of information about him, including his address, they could only send it to him if they knew him on a first name basis. And that being unlikely, uh, they had to send it to somebody they did know on a first name basis who was closer to the lawyer uh, than they were. Uh, and so effectively what he created was a series of letter chains where these letters m made their way across the country. Uh, and of the 300 that started, about 20% uh, got, uh, got to the lawyer and the length of those chains was about six. And so that we think is where this notion of, of six degrees of separation came from. Uh, and what, uh, uh, what I worked on uh, in graduate schools a few decades later uh, was to try to understand uh, why that should be the case. So, you know, let's say it is the case that everybody in the world is connected to everyone else. Uh, that's sort of surprising um, because uh, when we look around at our, at our, at our social networks, uh, they don't, <clears throat> you know, they, they tend to be pretty homogeneous, right? We know people uh, who are like us. Uh, we know a lot of people that, you know, that we live near. We know a lot of people that we work with. Uh, and so if we were trying to get a message to one of them or someone like them, we might think, <clears throat> well, that seems pretty obvious how I could do that. But if you pick somebody, you know, a Tierra del Fuegan or an Eskimo or, a, uh, uh, or a, you know, these are the sorts of, uh, um, um, uh, you know, stereotypical characters that people come up with, uh, you know, somebody who's a, a native in a rainforest, uh, these are people who are very far away geographically, who are far away socially, who are um, uh, who w with whom you you would imagine you have very little in common. To find a path to those people in just six degrees of separation seems much less intuitive, right? And so uh, when I was uh, when I was doing my PhD at Cornell back in the mid 1990s, I worked with a, a mathematician uh, called Steve Strogatz. And we got interested in this problem um, from a totally different direction. We were trying to understand how crickets synchronize. Yeah, I've read um, about this. And, <laughs> um, and uh, so we were uh, studying uh, you know, biological oscillators and trying to figure out how they could, they could end up synchronizing with each other. Uh, and we were studying crickets in particular. And uh, I started to think about how the crickets were listening to each other mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, eventually convinced myself that there was some kind of network uh, that they were uh, connected by. But it wasn't uh, obvious what the structure of that network would look like. And there was some, you know, it seemed that they were more likely to be listening to crickets that were closer to them. But there were all kinds of things in the way, you know, trees and branches, and they were scattered all around the place in a, in a, in a sort of semi-random manner. And so I started to wonder about the structure of networks that were, uh, that were sort of somewhat ordered and also somewhat random. Uh, and uh, we can you say a little more? Why were you interested in crickets in the first place? It's such a weird thing because you were a physics student, right? right. Undergraduate. I mean, you were in you're in the navy, and then you're a physics student, right? <laughs> and then you start studying crickets for some reason. My, Are you just a strange guy? I mean, I, I I'm trying true, to understand I, your biography. It's true. I was I, I I when I left 
going back even further now to the sure. 1980s when I left high school, I joined the Navy in Australia and I, uh, and I studied physics uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, and then uh, after a couple of years in the Navy, I decided that it wasn't a good fit for me. And I applied to graduate school over here in the US and I ended up at Cornell uh, in the engineering school. Uh, and I, what I thought I wanted to do was work on what was then called chaos theory, uh, nonlinear dynamics and chaos. So this was sort of a, a hot topic in mathematics and physics at the time. And in Jurassic um, World, right? Or Jurassic Park. Uh, yes, it does, come up, in, it does come up in, in Jurassic yes, Park. It does come up in Jurassic Park, where yeah. uh, uh, the actor played by uh, Jeff um, Jeff Goldblum Goldblum uh -huh. uh, talks about he uh -huh. tries to use chaos theory to to seduce uh, one of the <laughs> other characters. Um, but I had I had uh, you know I had read about this and, and done a little bit of work as an undergraduate on on chaos theory, and I, I got to Cornell and. Uh, I quickly realized that you know all the easy problems had already been worked out and only the hard ones were left. Uh, and so I started to think about other problems I could work on. And that's when Strogatz showed up and he was an, you know, an expert in, uh, in nonlinear dynamics and in particular synchronization of oscillators. And so, uh, you know, we What were, is an oscillator for those? So an oscillator is like a clock, okay. something that just uh, uh, behaves has a pattern. rhythmically. Okay, uh, yeah. So it just, uh, you know, a pendulum is another example. Uh, so, you know, Strogatz had studied problems like, um, you know, in biology, uh, pacemaker cells in the heart beating huh. rhythmically, fireflies flashing, and, and crickets, crickets chirping. Okay. So th this particular species of cricket that we were studying is an extremely rhythmic chirper, huh. right? It just chirps uh, uh, in a very regular um, manner, and it's the frequency that, at which it chirps is actually uh, calibrated by the temperature. Interesting. So the hotter it is, the faster it chirps. So if you if you once you calibrate it correctly, you can use this cricket as a way to oh to measure the, the temperature. temperature. <laughs> That's uh -huh. fascinating. Uh, but one thing that they do, in addition to chirping rhythmically, is if you put one or more of them, if you put more than one of them together, they synchronize. So they lock onto each other and they chirp at exactly the same time, and they're amazing synchronizers. Like they will they will lock onto each other instantaneously. Uh, and they will chirp perfectly in sync. And this is large uh, numbers in them too. Right? And large numbers, yeah. So be, when you, it could and be they ten used, of them, or it could be a thousand were, of them. There were lots of them on, on campus at Cornell. So in the late summer, I would walk home, and you walk by these past these trees, and the entire tree is like pulsing, uh, as if it's a single giant cricket, um, and they're all perfectly in sync with each other. And so, uh, so it's a little bit of a biological mystery how they do this, and it's also a mathematical mystery how they do this, or at least it was uh, at the time. And so that's, what, that's why we were studying crickets, is we were trying to understand the mathematics of synchrony. Um, but it involved doing experiments, which meant going and getting actual crickets and, and uh, you know, effectively chirping at them to try to figure out what the rules were that they were using. Uh, so I was working with an entomologist, someone who studies insects, uh, and Steve, uh, and we were doing these experiments together. And so I'm sitting there late at night by myself like thinking about the crickets and the networks and the, the chirping and the synchrony. And then I start thinking about this, uh, this six degrees problem that I had just heard about randomly. One day I was talking to my dad on the phone and, and he said, you know, I heard this funny thing about you're only ever six handshakes away from the president of the United States, that you have shaken hands with someone who's shaken hands with someone who's shaken hands with someone who's shaken hands with the president. And he said, have you ever heard of that? And I said, no, I hadn't, but it sounds kind of cool and interesting. And so I thought about it, and uh, I thought, yeah, it sounds like sort of a math problem. I wonder if I could you know, figure out how that works. Um, and then I'm thinking about the crickets and synchronization, 
and networks. And I'm thinking, I wonder if something like that is true for the crickets as well, that there's the six degrees property that happens in those networks and if that has something to do with synchronization. And so I'm kind of putting all these different ideas together from, uh, uh, from you know, sort of uh, uh, mathematics and, and, uh, and, uh, and biology and sociology and, and, and culture and wondering how they're all connected to each other. And so uh, that's when I went to Steve and said, look, I've got another idea for a project. Maybe we can sort of set the crickets aside for a moment and think about networks and whether if we can, if we could find, figure out what it is about networks that make them have this small world property, uh, maybe that will help us understand things like synchronization and also how diseases spread and how information spreads uh, and other kinds of problems that uh, might be related to networks. Uh, Crucially for our activist audience, how behavior spreads, how beliefs right, spread too among human beliefs beings. And, because just as the, the crooked synchronize in the wild, human beings synchronize in really important ways right. through networks. Right, and, and we see these cascading phenomena sort of spread through, uh, you know, uh, in social movements and and um, political revolutions, and you know all of these. You know, we a few years ago we saw the Arab Spring, yep. and uh, you know, so very much a sort of social contagion event where something happens and then that thing triggers another thing, which triggers another thing, which triggers another thing. Uh, so when we look around the world, we see these kind of cascading phenomena happen all the time. Uh, in financial markets is another example. Um, when social norms change, um, uh, when you know, collective beliefs change. Uh, and so uh, all of these things seem to have something to do with networks. And we... Uh, worked on this problem about uh, these networks that were somewhere between order and randomness, and we found that under pretty easy to satisfy conditions, you get this combination of properties that uh, everybody uh, is, uh, that, that the people who are close to you tend to be friends with each other. So we live in these like highly clustered local communities, and yet it still happens to be the case that um, everybody is connected in the six degrees manner. And so in honor of the small world problem, we call these small world networks. And that was what that paper was about that we published in 1998, was showing here's a simple model of how you can build small world networks. And then we, we found some network data and showed that real networks had this property. And then we showed that if you simulate various kinds of dynamical systems on small world networks like disease spreading uh, or synchronization, uh, the structure of the network, like even sort of subtle changes in the structure of the network can have uh, big effects on, on, the, on the behavior of the system. And so that was what that, that paper was about. Um, and as you mentioned, it, you know, it generated a lot of interest. And so lots of people in different fields, you know, from physics to biology to economics. Uh, epidemiology, economics, yeah, you heard about started it. thinking about networks. Uh, and that's why it has all those citations. Yeah, it's a funny thing because I was... Um a young graduate student, 2001 at MIT, studying economics. And I was studying a field, or I wanted to study a field called behavioral economics, mm -hmm. which um, I think you're probably quite familiar with. And, mm -hmm. and I want to be charitable to my former colleagues and you know, to myself since I was a failure. But <laughs> the biggest problem I had with behavioral economics was it was trying to understand these social phenomenon using this classical model of individual choice that just didn't seem to be working. We had... Mm -hmm all these ad hoc theories and ad hoc experiments, you know, there's this old Thomas Kuhnian metaphor of an epicycle and epicycles, right? Mm -hmm. Where 
back in the old days when we couldn't figure out why the celestial objects in the sky were moving in a way that seemed like the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, we'd say, oh, it's because this one has an orbit in an orbit, you know, yeah. and then another orbit within the orbit in the orbit, because our theory was just wrong. Right. And I sort of felt like the work I was doing as a behavioral economist is like that, mm -hmm. because we weren't looking at network structure. We were looking mm -hmm. entirely at individual choice. And your work... I mean, to me, as an economist at the time, the reason your paper was so important for a lot of us, granted, much more important for folks who are smart enough to work with it and figure out mm -hmm. more important things than I was able to figure out, was that it almost opened a door into a totally different conceptual mm -hmm. apparatus, mm -hmm. right? We should not just be looking at individual choice. We need to look at network structure. Right. And one of the things you just said that's fascinating to me is... Your dad's telling you this funny story about a Stanley Milgram experiment. That's a very kind of intuitive, common mm -hmm. sense, human interaction sort of story. And you say, oh, that's a math problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as, as someone who has been in social science basically my entire adult life, or in some way, mm -hmm. affiliated, so I could say that this is a fairly recent phenomenon in social science that you know, for decades in sociology and even in economics, mm -hmm. you know, there, there wasn't as much mathematical and empirical rigor. So I wonder what it was about you, and this relates to your book, Everything is Obvious, that made you want to look kind of behind behind the surface, mm -hmm. uh, underneath the surface, to figure out what the mathematical and physical laws of mm -hmm. things that seem very intuitive. I mean, was there something about you that, or some experience you had that made you think, you know what, I don't, I don't really believe that everything we're seeing in human interaction is what we think it is. Well, I, as I as I mentioned, I started off life as a physicist, and yeah. so you know, in physics, you're you're very much uh, indoctrinated with the belief that you know what you see in the world can be explained by um, you know <clears throat> mathematical laws and principles, right? Yeah. That sort of was the great um, uh, you know sort of the the huge leap forward in sort of Newton Newton's time, uh, where you know he he mathematized you know, Kepler's laws of motion and came up with, uh, you know, his universal law of gravitation, which just sort of explained so many things uh, all at once. And so, uh, you know, physics ever since then has been very enamored of mathematical laws. Um, and Including a lot of which are very counterintuitive. Like if you, if you, very counterintuitive. If you look at a particle, particle physics, yeah. it almost feels like some sort of spirituality or yes. religion. And I, and I sort of, so I like sort of multidimensional, you know. Exactly. So well, relativity yeah, and quantum, quantum mechanics and all of that stuff. And so I, I had been sort of, you know, living all of that uh, for, for a few years. And so it seemed totally natural to me to think about, you know, an empirical puzzle as a math problem, right? Um, now, I why would say... Why were you studying that in the Navy, anyways? I mean... Why was that... I studying physics in the Navy? Yeah. Well, because I wanted to study physics, and I wanted to join the Navy. <laughs> so, so you just thought that the reason. The Navy was a little bit of a... Uh, uh, it was a surprise to my parents, who huh. did not think that I was going to do that. And it was okay. a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, it wasn't something... You know, I didn't grow up wanting to join the Navy. I didn't have a you know family history of people being in the military... I just sort of got to the end of high school and I was trying to think about what to do and I saw an ad and I thought, oh, you know, this, this could be interesting. Uh, so it was a little bit of a random choice. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it was great for me in many ways. I, I learned a lot and I had some great adventures and made some great friends. Um, but I, I did know that I wanted to study physics and they had a physics major there. And so I thought, okay, that's fine. I can, I can still do what I want to do. Um, uh, but, you know, as it turns out, um, 
I wasn't great at physics. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't know. I was sort of like you with economics. You know, I was like, I could do it, but I was never like the best in my class. And as soon as I went anywhere else, there were always people who were tons better than me. And I, I got about halfway through my graduate program and I realized that I was never going to be a great mathematician and I was never going to be a great physicist. Why do you say uh, that? Because you have such a creative mind and you kind of obviously had so much success in using mathematical insights to understand the world, which I think is part of what physics is doing. I mean, I, well, you said by, yourself, by, sociology is kind of like physics. It's just physics at a different scale, right? So I, so I became a sociologist. <laughs> that was my, that was my creative uh, leap sideways. That was, your was, to, leap. was to say, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to be as good as other people are doing the stuff that I'm yeah. doing now, but maybe I can, maybe I can have, maybe winner, I can yeah. bring these ideas into, into these sort of adjacent fields. Now, as I learned, you know, there was a, a, a you know, a pretty, um, um, uh, long history of people using mathematics and sociology as well. As you know, it's not typical. Sociologists are not renowned as being highly mathematical people, but um, but some of them are. Yeah. And uh, so Jim there's Coleman. a whole J James Coleman yeah. uh, yeah. and Harrison White, who was uh, my postdoc advisor. Uh, you also started off as a physicist, and he became a sociologist and and did a lot of uh, of, of um, foundational work in in social network analysis. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I was, <clears throat> I kind of discovered a lot of that as I, as I went along and, but, uh, you know, I had a slightly different take on the, uh, on the, you know, on, on the theme of social networks. And I had, uh, you know, was because I was coming from this, uh, field of nonlinear dynamics and chaos, uh, there were just sort of different ways of thinking about problems that, that turned out to be, uh, useful. Um, uh, and so, you know, it was... Uh, you know, it was really more about, um, I, I guess what I've tried to do throughout my career is, you know, uh, is to, to synthesize ideas from across fields, right? And so, you know, uh, so that I think is, you know, I, I seem to have had a, a strange journey if you, if you look at me uh, through the lens of traditional academic careers, because traditional academic careers tend to progress within a single disciplinary silo. So people are physicists, or people are economists, or people are sociologists, and they go to school and they do a PhD in that subject, and they become professors in that subject, and they publish papers that are in journals that are associated with that subject. And by that measure, I'm just all over the place. You know, I've published in all these different journals, and I've, you know, I, I have a undergraduate degree in physics and a PhD in engineering and I got tenure as a professor of sociology and then I left and went and worked for Yahoo and Microsoft and industry for 12 years uh, with you know mostly computer scientists and now I'm at Penn and I'm in three different schools uh, none of which is sociology or physics <laughs> I am back in the engineering school but in computer science which is not something I ever studied so you know by traditional academic standards, it looks like a very strange career. But from my perspective, I'm always doing the same thing. You know, I'm just trying to bring together, you know, ideas and methods from wherever they are to try to understand, you know, collective human behavior. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been pretty consistent about that. Um, but I'm just sort of willing to scavenge wherever is necessary in order in order to to make progress, and <clears throat> also to take advantage of of um, of changes in the world. So, 
you know, when I was in grad school in the late 90s, uh, you know, the thing back then was that we had fast computers, at least fast compared to what they had been, you know, 10 or 20 years beforehand. Windows 98. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we had Linux machines, which <laughs> yeah, were a little it. quicker. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, but we were, you know, we were able to simulate uh, systems that would have been hard to simulate uh, not that long before that. So the, we were sort of leveraging the thing, that, the technology that we had at the time. What we didn't have much of was data. Right. There was very little network data floating around back then. Um, but then, you know, 10 years later, you know, the, the world had completely changed. And so, uh, you know, search engines had become huge. Uh, you know, Amazon had become a big company. Uh, we had the, you know, Facebook had was a small company, but was was attracting a lot of attention. And Twitter had just uh, had just started. And so this whole world of social media and you know, e-commerce and uh, all of these uh, um, services that were connecting people uh, either socially or economically or, or informationally uh, had come into existence in the sort of decades since I finished um, uh, since I finished grad school. And so you know it seemed uh, reasonable to try to take advantage of all of that. All of these services were you know, spewing off large amounts of data and it became clear to me that sociology would become a computational uh, discipline uh, the way that biology had you know, 20 years earlier. Uh, again, for the same reason that suddenly there was all of this data. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, I sort of changed my work from being you know, mathematical models and simulations to being much more empirical uh, you know, whether using data that came from, uh, from existing services or running uh, experiments in the lab. Um, and, you know, so that's something that, that I've just sort of continued to try to, to, to push on. As new things become possible, technically, uh, we're sort of always asking the question, you know, how can we use this new development to, um, uh, to do interesting science? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because you're saying 10 years out of grad school, which was probably around 2008, right? Something 2007? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. So I graduated in 1998. So by 2006, yeah. 2007, it was that, pretty clear that's the world amazing. had changed. That's amazing. Because the paper in Nature was 1998, right? Or mm -hmm. So that was like your first big paper. It and was it, my <laughs> first. It was actually my first paper. It was your first paper. Yeah. I like, graduated from my PhD. You, know, it's, you must be the most successful sociologist, or, or at least junior sociologist in the history of sociology. Well, some might sociologists be... might quibble with uh, <laughs> me being a sociologist at all. But, okay, fair um, enough. But can, can I ask you a question about how you do that? Because I think it's interesting. I was talking to one of your colleagues, Mary McDonald, earlier today mm -hmm. about innovation. And, and mm -hmm. she basically said the same thing you're saying now. And in the context of activist movements, mm -hmm. that most people study social movements say that there are not many laws we have of social movements. One of them is they have to innovate mm -hmm. you know, because it's a dynamic system. The moment you start shooting from the same corner of the court over and over again, they know exactly where to defend. You don't mm -hmm. make any progress. You have to innovate. But innovation is hard, and mm -hmm. we don't really have a lot of understanding of how innovation works. One thing we seem to know about innovation is that it happens from jumping out of your silo, mm -hmm. from diversifying your network and mm -hmm. learning from as many different people as possible. But most people struggle with that. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd say this is even true of elite academics. Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in economics at MIT, you know, of one of the top economics mm -hmm. PhD programs. I think it's partly because we're just so insanely busy, 
but then partly because there's a certain lexicon you have in economics. There's a certain mentality. I was telling you about this mm -hmm. rational choice model that everyone mm -hmm. in economics, even the folks who are the radicals, you know, the mm -hmm. behavioral economics people, were still kind of thinking in terms of individual choice. Mm -hmm. And you've consistently managed to jump out of whatever silo you were into other silos. So mm -hmm. what advice do you have for other people who feel kind of stuck in some silo, whether it's a moral silo, a political <clears> silo, <throat> an economic silo? What it, what allowed you to go and talk to a mathematician mm -hmm. and an entomologist and try and figure things out about social networks? Well, I think, so I'll just say something about academia and it's not a bad thing. I think it's a, you know, a perfectly reasonable thing is that, um, you know, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, like there weren't really disciplines. Like everyone was like a moral, you know, Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, yeah. right? Like we think of him an economist now, but he didn't think of himself as an economist. So the, 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 the division of labor into, uh, into disciplines that we, that we understand now is, is sort of not even a hundred years old. Right. Wow. And, and really, I think, uh, only sort of gathered steam in the post-war era. Uh, and, you know, it did so in the way that lots of these things happen where, you know, everything just got big. Right. And suddenly you have lots of people studying, uh, you know, social science or whatever. And so it makes sense to specialize. Right. And so they decided, OK, well, economics goes over here and sociology goes over here and political science goes over here. And we'll we'll make more progress if people just sort of pick parts of the problem uh, and, uh, you know, and focus on that. And so uh, and then, you know, within each of those disciplines, you see further subspecialization and, uh, you know, myopically, at least you make more progress. You get, <clears throat> you develop specialized methods, you develop theories that are appropriate to that particular problem area. And so <clears throat> now your whole culture develops around this, this specialization. And, you know, you train students in the same model. And a couple of generations later, people have sort of forgotten that this is just something that we decided to do. Uh, because it made sense at the time. And it becomes sort of reified as the thing, the way that things are done, right? Uh, and so you develop these, you know, in the, you know, the flip side of, of, of benefiting from specialization is that you build up these walls uh, between disciplines. And now people have trouble talking across them because they've all developed their, their internal specialized language. Uh, people have various sort of prejudices and biases about, you know, economists think sociologists aren't rigorous and sociologists think that economists you know, are missing the point. And, um, uh, and so, uh, you know, so it's difficult. And so part of the problem is that, is that once you've kind of invested all of this time and energy in learning a certain set of theories and a certain set of methods and tools, like you've got a lot invested in that. Yeah. And to sort of set that aside and say, okay, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to be an idiot. Like, I'm not going to know anything. I'm going to go into this department and everyone's going to laugh at me because I don't know any of the things that they know and I'm going to say dumb things in yeah. faculty meetings and everyone's going to look at me and say, you don't know who that is? Yeah. Like, um, And that's a big risk for a lot of people to take because now you're an expert. People look at you. They respect you. You can just stay there. And by the way, you'll get rewarded for doing that. So the academic system also rewards people doing the same thing over and over again that you so you you get very good at doing a particular thing you're now being rewarded for doing that thing and if you walk away from all of that you stop getting rewarded 
and you have to sort of pay this huge penalty. Explain how the academic system rewards people for doing the same thing over and over again, just for folks who don't understand academia, because I think it has some implications mm -hmm. for other types of social change. But well, basically, the, you know, the currency of academia is publication and citation, as you've, as you've mentioned. So you, we, we, we do research. The outcome of that research is the output of that research. Most of the time is that we publish papers in journals. And then we recognize those papers by citing them or you know, give, give, giving them prizes or whatever. Um, and so you know, if you want to publish in a top economics journal, there's like four econ journals in the US that are considered to be the top econ journals. And they have very particular standards about the sort of paper that they'll even consider publishing, right? So if just some random non-economist sends a paper to you know, Quarterly Journal of Economics, they, they won't even send it out to review. They'll just reject it straight away. It's like obvious that you're not part of the club. Um, see you later, right? We just, we're just not even interested, right? So, so you have to kind of learn a whole lot about the way to write an economics paper and the kind of things you have to cite, to the kind of language that you have to speak in just to even be considered, right? Um, and if you want to get tenure as an economist, you've got to publish in those journals, right? And so, so there's a huge constraints that come with sort of buying into the system, right? If you want to say, okay, I want to be, uh, you know, a, a tenured economist at a top research university, just that goal places a lot of constraints on what you can even do. You can't just wake up in the morning and decide you want to do something totally different because it won't be recognized by the, uh, by the authorities that decide whether you're really an economist or not, okay? Um, and you know, you could say that's a trade-off that's worth making because now we have some, uh, you know, we have standards. Yeah. We can decide what's good, what's not good. We can filter out all the rubbish and the stuff that appears in those journals. Sure, we don't publish everything, but what we do publish is very good, right? Um, now, you can agree with that or disagree with that, but it's a reasonable premise, right? And so we advance the field. Um, this so, is kind of my personal experience, actually, because I one of the things I was really interested in when I was a young economics mm -hmm. and, and legal scholar was intrinsically valuing natural systems, mm -hmm. you know, because we have all these cost benefit analyses and we always think about policy, at least within economics, mm -hmm. from the perspective of what's the social welfare gain in total. Yeah. You put a number on it. But when it came to even massive things like species extinction or the extermination of quadrillions of animals from this planet yeah. forever, like there was no number at all for right. that. And, 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 and particularly there's no intrinsic number. We didn't, right. unless there was someone who was willing to pay uh -huh. to protect a polar bear, it didn't matter. So polar right. bears got some protection, but for example, the bristlemouth fish, the most numerous vertebrate on the face of the planet Earth, hundreds of trillions of which have died due to ocean deoxygenation uh -huh. Uh -huh. are not valued at all. Right. And so anyways, I, 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 I see your point very vividly. And I'm not saying I would have succeeded if I had more ability to work outside of the box, because I think I just wasn't up to, but, that, standard, but that's but, a great example because you yeah. might say, well, we should have a field of environmental economics and there probably is a field of yeah. environmental economics. But the person who like first tried to do that was probably uh, not considered to be a serious economist by the economist and not considered to be a serious environmental scientist uh, by the environmental scientists. Yeah. And, and I actually have a good friend who now has tenure at MIT, but when she started, she does uh, economics of... Uh, um, uh, renewable energy technologies, right? And she had exactly this problem. You know, and she was brilliant, yeah. but um, but the economists thought she wasn't a real economist, and the engineers thought she wasn't a real engineer. <laughs> so she's got home, and which was true. She wasn't. I mean, she did have a PhD in engineering, but she 
she wasn't trying to be that. Sure. She was trying to, to ask a different question and say, well, if you go out in the world, right, forget about, you know, uh, sort of nanofabrication of, you know, solar cells, right? That's like a field that has reasonable questions about how to build solar panels, right? And, you know, forget about sort of traditional economics, right? That's great. We could do that. But if I go out in the world, the question that matters is how soon are we going to be able to build renewable technologies at scale? And how are we going to drive down that cost curve so that we can actually accomplish that, right? So there's a very kind of practical question that comes from the world about, uh, you know, that involves ideas from economics and also from material science, right? Uh, but that question didn't sit clearly in either of those fields. So the fields were not paying attention to it. And when she started trying to ask it, she had trouble getting a work published, she had trouble getting jobs. Um, you know, as it turns out, she eventually got tenure at MIT. So she did, she did fine in the end. But it was like, you know, it was probably 15 years of, of struggle to get there, right? Uh, and so, so, you know, I have a similar kind of approach where, you know, the, the questions that motivate me are just questions that I, you know, like this one about small world networks. It didn't come from reading any particular literature. It came from thinking about a problem in the world. And I would say that if you start that way, if you go out in the world and say, here's a puzzle, right? So, you know, activism, there's lots of practical questions that come up for activists about how do I motivate people? How do I you know, how do I, uh, you know, think strategically to get my message out there? How do I kind of make things spread? You know, this is a question that people used to ask me all the time, uh, you know, when I was studying social networks. People would say, how do I get my idea to go viral? And I would say, well, mostly I study how it's really unpredictable yeah. <laughs> what goes viral and what doesn't. So unfortunately, I'm not much help to you. <laughs> But it's a totally reasonable. It, it's yeah. a totally reasonable question, right? That's sure. actually the question that everybody cares about. Why aren't we studying it, uh -huh. right? And so there's there's this sort of mismatch between the kinds of questions that people study in academia, yeah. which are motivated by sort of some theoretical literature that they're interested in, and the kinds of questions that people care about in the real world, where they just, you know, they they kind of, they just care about getting stuff done, and you know. It, it, often that is a psychology question and it's an economics question and it's a sociology question and it's an organizational design question and you know maybe it's also a technology question it's all of these things rolled into one and so the academic world in its silos is not particularly well equipped to answer those kinds of questions and everybody sort of knows this and everyone I mean, people have been talking about gosh I mean we're talking about interdisciplinary research since when I was a kid you know, so 30 years now, at least, the academic world has been saying we have to be more interdisciplinary because mm -hmm. that's where the problems are. Yeah. But actually changing that is difficult because we have these institutions that are very successful being what they are, and we know how to hire people, and we know how to train them, and we know how to promote them, and we know how to recognize them as long as they stay in their silos. And the minute they step outside, it's sort of like... I don't know. Is this person good? Are they not good? Are they just making stuff up? How do we, how do we, you know, I mean, so it's a miracle that I ever got to have a career really, because I just refused to play by those rules the whole way. Um, 
quite explicitly. I said, I'm not going to do it. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to do the thing that I want to do. And if they'll let me do it, I'll keep doing it. And if they don't, I'll go do something else. Um, and I was very serious about that. Um, but I don't, I'm not saying I would recommend that other people do that because it, when I say I was serious about it, I would have left. If, if they'd said, look, sorry, this work is not, and pe people did say that you know, very clearly. They said, this is, you know, my, my first book manuscript, which was my, um, my dissertation. Uh, we sent it to, to Princeton University Press. Um, and the, the editor was really excited about it. He knew Steve, my advisor. He'd, he'd published Steve's textbook on nonlinear dynamics and chaos. So Steve sent it to this guy, Jack. And Jack said, oh, this is great. Small world problem. So cool. And he sent it out to a, a mathematician who was a graph theorist. Uh, and a sociologist and social networks person. And the graph theorist said, this is not graph theory. And the sociologist <laughs> said, this is not sociology. Not sociology. Yeah. And, um, and I read the reviews and I said, I agree with those reviews. Yeah. I, that, but and that's totally not the point. Yeah. That was yeah. not what I, 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 I could have told you that. I wasn't trying to do a book on graph theory. I wasn't trying to do a book on sociology or social networks. I was trying to do this new thing. And uh, the editor said, well, I'm sorry, I can't really do anything with these, these very negative reviews. Wow. And so it just kind of languished there. But we got lucky because the Nature paper then came out and uh, Steve sent, wrote to the editor and said, you know, you might want to give that book another chance. Yeah. Uh, and so he said, okay, I got it this time. I'm going to send it to different people. Uh, and he sent it to, uh, you know, sort of complex systems type people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they said, oh, this is wonderful. This is we great. love it. Yeah. And so, um, and so then it got published. Wow, but that's so arbitrary. I know, but it almost didn't. And the Nature paper almost ended up <coughs> suffering the same fate. So, so you know. Can, can I ask you a question? Have you gone back to these reviewers and said, hey, look at my paper today, 37,000 citations <laughs> later, 47,000. I guess it's a blind review process. So maybe you don't even know. I, I know, about. well, I know two, I know the two positive reviewers for the Nature okay, paper. Okay, you know the positive. You don't yeah. know the negative one? The negative though? one, I don't, there was you a negative know. reviewer We've never, I've never uh, met or heard of, huh. and and he. I feel like this person owes you an apology. <laughs> he, he, uh, well, it'd be interesting to see if they change their mind at all. They might yeah. be like, nope, I still it's think still it's a dumb paper. Forty-seven thousand <laughs> citations later, revolutionizing. Well, look, let me. Numbers. I will just say this: Theory. that I think citations are a pretty bad yeah. measure of of quality. For sure. Um, yeah. And so I'm very happy. It can that be my, fashion too. I'm very just, happy yeah. that my paper got all those citations, and it certainly helped the rest of my career to have a paper like that. Um, but if I even just look at my papers, my own papers that I know very well, I would not rank them in importance the way they are ranked by citations. I mean, that paper I think is a great paper and, I'm, and I think it probably is my most uh, impactful paper. Yeah. Um, but certainly the, you know, if you look at the full list, I, I would not rank them anywhere near like they're ranked uh, in terms of citations. So, Lots of things go into, you know, including, you know, what field it is, for example. Sure. So, um, you know, uh, so, you know, just because you have more citations than a Nobel Prize winner doesn't mean you should get a Nobel Prize. Sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Although, you know, you know, that would be nice um, too. That was a really interesting conversation, but I don't think you actually answered my question, <laughs> which is what most people are going to want to hear, which is, how do you do it? I mean, what was it about you that allowed you to jump these silos? Because I, I don't think this is a point just about academia. Mm -hmm. Um, Ezra Klein wrote a book recently called Why We're Polarized about negative polarization yeah. and these super identities that are developing. We're being siloed politically. Um, as an animal rights activist, I can tell you there are a lot uh -huh. of vegans and animal rights people are very siloed morally. 
You know, they can't even talk to someone who has a mm-hmm. different perspective. And if you can't even talk to people, you're not going to learn how they think, much less how to change them, mm-hmm. right? So I guess there's something about your career that has always enamored me because you've always been able to walk into Cornell, for example, as an engineering student, go track down this mathematician who probably wasn't even in engineering school, and then find an entomologist, bring them all into a room together, and publish a paper that literally changes the face of sociology. So I, there's got to be some tips you have for people about how to do that sort well, of thing I, and just like yeah. get out of your comfort zone and talk to these people who are so different from you. I, so I, I did kind of answer the question, okay. but, but and maybe I'll just be more explicit about please, it. The, please. the solution is not to care not about to the care. silence, oh, right? Okay. And, but it, my, my point is like, that's not a great solution for many people, right? Because they do care about the silence, right? And so, so in my case, you know, when I went to Steve and I said, this is the thing I want to do for my PhD dissertation, he said, look, I think that's a really interesting problem, but if you're interested in having an academic career, you should not do that problem, right? Because you will not get a job, right? Um, You know, for exact, for all the reasons we've just talked about, right? And I said, thank you, I appreciate that, I don't care. I don't care, I'm right? gonna do it anyways. But, yeah. but in not caring, I had to really take that risk, yeah. right? Like I had to be willing to, you know, like it could very well have happened that I didn't have an academic career yeah. and I had to be okay with that. Right. And a lot of people who are in grad school are not okay with that. They really want to have the academic career. So if, if what you really wanna do is be a professor at a university in a particular subject, you should not do the thing that I did, right? Because it's highly likely that you won't get that, right? Yeah. You should take the safe route, right? And you should learn how to publish in the journals that are the best journals in your field. And you should do all of those things because that's how you will get that career. But in my case, I didn't care about that career. I cared about having a different kind. I just cared about doing something interesting, actually. And so it, it seemed to me like there are lots of things I could do with my life. You know, I had been a naval officer and that was fun too, right? <laughs> I, um, was it really? It was fun. I can't yeah. see you as a naval officer. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see you as that sort of person because you seem like the sort of person who likes breaking rules and not following them. Well, you know, that's a and funny <laughs> thing about the, the, the uh, that is a good point. That yeah. is a very good point. I actually was pretty good at following rules oh, yeah. uh, okay. in the academy. Um, but also, you know, I left when I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, you're right. I'm, I'm not so uh, conformist. Um, but you know, I went to a boys boarding school. I went to a Naval Academy. Like I'm good at following rules and wearing uniforms and all those things. And, and I will say, by the way, that there were lots of people like me, uh, Hmm. in the military. Really? Yeah. yeah, It's surprising, right? Did they all leave? (laughs) Well, just that they, that they weren't the sort of rule following automatons that you might expect them to be. The people are generally pretty free thinkers. You, you just have to learn how to operate. We used to call it playing the game, right? That, that there was sort of, um, there was a, uh, you know, there was this sort of patina of, of, uh, you know, rules over everything. Uh, and you couldn't... Patina meaning, just for folks who don't know that term, just like a thin covering, right? Right, like there a, was a... Like yeah, a superficial so, surface that's covering so they, up something so, deeper. And we all kind of lived in this environment where there were lots and lots and lots of rules, right? And you just had to sort of constantly gesture at following them. And then you would just informally do the thing that you wanted to do anyway, right? And as long as you didn't get caught, nobody cared, right? And if you did get caught, they've made a big fuss about caring, but they clearly didn't really care, right? Because everybody knows that these rules are stupid. Um, 
And so you all agree to play by the rules, and then everybody also kind of agrees under the table that you're going to ignore the rules whenever you need to get something done. And so, and so it was very sort of like, uh, you know, and they'd be like, okay, you played the game, you lost, now you take your punishment. And everyone would be like, okay, thank yeah. you, sir. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, there's a constitutional law scholar I just talked to for the podcast, Justin Marceau, yeah. who is also very much a nonconformist. Mm -hmm. He's led ag-gag litigation, basically constitutional lawsuits against states that are passing laws that criminalize taking photographs inside factory farms. And mm -hmm. he's used some genius constitutional arguments and struck down a bunch of them all over the country including in some cases where a bunch of other con law scholars were saying there's no chance in hell you're going mm -hmm. to don't do this. You're going to set a bad precedent. He did anyways. He's won all these huge victories. And he was in the Air Force Academy in the United mm -hmm. States. And he said almost exactly the same thing mm -hmm. he just told me. Because mm -hmm. I was curious. I was like, how did someone who's like such a radical and is like just ignoring everyone's, mm -hmm. you know, all these stentorian, mm -hmm. elderly constitutional law scholars telling you don't do this, and he does it anyways. And he said, well, no, actually it taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. It taught me about when you can break rules. Because mm -hmm. when you had all these strict rules and you realize it's a game, you can kind of see where the weak points are. Well, I mean, the thing is, if, every, what you could get away if with. everybody actually followed the rules all the yeah. time, nothing would ever happen, done. right? Yeah. And so you're sort of forced into this situation where yeah. you realize, I can't follow the rules. I know I have to do something. Oh. And so then you like experiment and then, then you actually get rewarded for yeah. actually having broken the rules, but everybody just sort of pretends to yeah. ignore that, right? And and by the way, organizational sociologists know this as well, right? That there's, uh, you know, that there's always sort of, you know, the rules are there um, uh, because sometimes you need them, right? But uh, but most of the time, you just kind of let people do what they want to do, including breaking the rules. Um, and only if something bad happens, then you sort of drag the rule book out and say, okay, now now we punish and. Uh, uh, and, you know, conversely, you know, uh, in uh, labor disputes, there's a, a common tactic called work to rule, mm -hmm. which is, you know, rather than going on strike, you just say, okay, everybody follow the rules. Huh. And sure enough, everything oh, grinds to a halt, God. right? Wow. Um, so, and, but it's, we're not striking. We're just, yeah, following, we're just the following the rules. You know, yeah. like, who can argue with that, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so, so we sort of, this is a known thing that, um, that there is sort of a, a difference between uh, what the rules say and how you actually operate. And it's just particularly obvious in the military because it's a, such a hierarchical and, and rule following or, or rule uh, imposing sort of organization. Um, but it, the same logic applies. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people in the military are pretty good at sort of, you know, skirting around things and, and getting stuff done. Um, By the way, that reminds me of something political scientists say about democracy that for democracy to function, you actually need civil disobedience. There's mm -hmm. part of what makes for a, a good system is enough slack that the, when the rules need to be broken, there's respect for that. And mm -hmm. there are channels to which you can do it mm -hmm. and affect some sort of change. But can you give an example of like a military rule that you broke? I mean, what would, what, I'm, just, I'm kind of curious because oh. I've never been in that sort of culture and it's it sounds kind of very intimidating and terrifying, but well, I mean, it sounds a, like you got away with a lot. A lot of things <laughs> where, you know, technically you're supposed to use the chain of command. They oh. teach you about the chain of command. Okay, you want to do something, you got you to ask your boss, your boss asks, you know, his or her boss and goes up the chain of command and comes back down again. Of course, if you actually use the chain of command, Nothing you just never hear anything yeah. again, yeah. right? Yeah. So then you get sick of waiting. You have to go talk to somebody. You cut across the chain of command. You go talk to somebody and say, hey, can you make this thing work for me? Yeah. And then it happens. And then everyone's happy yeah. because the thing happened, yeah. right? And nobody asks questions about like, well, why didn't you get approval for that? Now, of course, if you do it and it goes badly, 
then they say you did not get approval for that. So it's risky. Yeah. Um, but so it's like a, it's slack for rule breaking for folks mm -hmm. who are competent enough to figure out when the right. rules are broken. Exactly. Or when the rules need to be broken. Yes. And we talked. Yeah, there's a lesson for that in democracy too, you know, in civil disobedience, like slack for rule breaking when you've got a point to make and well, you should be breaking I, the I think rules. we sometimes see also in democracy the opposite happening where, um, yeah. you know, they call what they call legislative hardball. Yeah, where, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. If you look at the way the Senate has been sort of, sort of falling into dysfunction in, in recent years, you know, the rules haven't changed. Though what has changed is that people are now like really interrogating the rules very carefully to see exactly what they can get away with. Whereas previously there was sort of this uh, informal set of rules, norms that people had uh, that were like, well, you know, horse trading and I'll do things for you if you do things for me and a lot of stuff happening on behind closed doors um, uh, that, you know, may have been non-transparent and bad in other ways, but definitely allowed for people to get stuff done. But now, uh, you know, as, you know, these sort of partisan divisions harden, uh, they are increasingly, you know, sort of forcing the issue where they're like, well, technically according to the rules, I can do this thing. Uh, and no one has ever done it before, but I'm gonna, you know, nothing is preventing me from doing it, so I'm gonna do it. So right? I'm guessing you're thinking of the filibuster? Is that? The is filibuster that, yeah. or, you know, or, Can you just explain that real quickly for folks who don't know what the filibuster is and what, what, what the rule means? Well, so <laughs> I'm not an expert in anything <laughs> do to do your with best. constitutional law. I know a little bit law, about the filibuster. But, 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 you know, my understanding is the, you know, the filibuster was a, was a uh, uh, you know, was, in, you know, in, invented, uh, rule was invented during the, uh, uh, the, the end of slavery yep. to prevent, uh, 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 you know, white slave states from uh, from uh, uh, from uh, just you know, silencing senators yeah. they didn't want right. to talk right, right. Could, so yeah um, but it has sort of evolved over the years to be you know you know for a long time it was it was a rule that was invoked only rarely to um, uh, if if a minority felt extremely passionate about a particular uh, topic they could they could hold the floor and filibuster by talking uh, until uh, you know the other side gave up and, and conceded to their demands. But then it sort of evolved into this uh, you know effortless objection where a single senator can say, "Well, you know, I'm you know I'm not I'm not letting a, a, a bill go to the floor for a vote, um, um, and uh, unless it can be overridden by a 60 vote yeah. majority." And so effectively, it's meant that you know. Uh, you know, nothing can become law unless it has 60 votes in the Senate, which is these days sort of impossible to get. So, yeah. um, but again, this is like a, you know, the rule itself hasn't changed in, in decades, yeah. but the way that it has been applied has changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd say the, you know, sort of, uh, you know, refusing to seat uh, uh, Merritt Garland mm -hmm. during Obama's last term was like pretty extreme example of legislative hardball where, you know, the Senate majority leader said, I'm just not going to talk to the guy. Yeah. yeah. Which, <laughs> um, unfortunately, they were allowed and, to do. And there the was rules. nothing they could do yeah, about it because the they, rules they... didn't say it was, it was just, it was just outrageous, but, but it was not something that was, uh, that was forbidden. So, so yes, I think that, you know, there is always in any organization, a difference between the formal rules and the informal rules and, typically it's the informal rules that do most of the work, yeah. right? And then only when there's some dispute or something bad happens do you kind of drag the formal rules out. Yeah. 
Now, when I'm, um, one of my former professors at the University of Chicago, who's a federal judge, or actually was a federal judge, Dick Posner. Oh, wow. I don't remember yeah. if he actually said these exact words, but it's definitely the impression you got when you took a seminar with him was essentially law and, and rules in court in our legal and political system are just politics by their means. Mm -hmm. You know, and so while we, we give this, from an outside perspective, when you're a non-lawyer looking at the legal system, you see this as this, oh, this really intimidating system that you've got to follow all the mm -hmm. rules. And it's very strict and it's very clear, almost an elegant mathematical system that deserves all this deference. And there's reason mm -hmm. that the political system has to convey this to people because otherwise mm -hmm. people don't follow any of the rules. Right. They, they break them all, all the time. But the reality of it is the laws are still just political expressions mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. and, and they're part of the political debate we have in our society. And, mm -hmm. and the folks who understand that are the ones who really understand how to create change and make mm -hmm. sure that system is functioning well. I had one other question about this story, and then I want to actually go into some of the implications because we talked about your mm -hmm. paper, this Small World Network's paper, and we haven't actually talked too much about the implications of it. Like, what are the lessons mm -hmm. that substantive we can learn? We're talking entirely just about the meta level. <laughs> mm -hmm. How did you get there? But there is one other meta level question that I think is really fascinating, which you've mentioned, which is that that paper and that work was not just an attempt to bring together a lot of different minds, an entomologist, a mm -hmm. mathematician, an engineering and physics student. It was also a change for you, right? And this is a podcast about change mm -hmm. and about how personal change and social change can inform one another. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be too atomistic or individualistic because mm -hmm. I've read your book. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. what applies to the individual level doesn't happen at the social level necessarily. But I still think it's very interesting to think about what it is that allows some individual people to make those sorts of changes. Because I think, in theory, most of us would like to think of ourselves as people who can change mm -hmm. in the way you described. When we have more data available on network science, let's, mm -hmm. let's do more empirical work. When we have better computing power, let's do some simulations and do some fancy stuff with crickets mm -hmm. and the neural network of C. elegans or whatever it is and devise, devise mm -hmm. some sophisticated mathematical models. But the reality is most people find it extremely challenging mm -hmm. to change in that way, mm -hmm. much less change in the dramatic ways that mm -hmm. you change, where mm -hmm. you're not just talking other disciplines, you're literally jumping mm -hmm. disciplines. I mean, you studied engineering and physics. What was your PhD? I don't even know what your PhD engineering. is. Engineering. Engineering. And you end up at a sociology department somehow. Right. So what, what advice do you have for people just personally? Like, if I want to be the sort of person mm -hmm. who can adapt, and God knows the world is going to force a lot of us to adapt yeah. over the next 40 years, what, what has allowed you to adapt? Well, I think, you know, there's a few different ways of answering that question. But from my perspective, the, the most important thing to overcome is just fear, right? That, um, like I said before, whenever you, whenever you sort of step out of the thing that you know how to do and you go do something else, uh, you are, you're going to look stupid. You're going to feel stupid. You're going to feel like an imposter, um, uh, you're not going to know things that other people know. Uh, and so it, it's constantly sort of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone uh, and risking some sort of humiliation, yeah. right? Um, you felt that way when you talked to Steve Stogatz? I mean, I feel that Initially? way all the time. I still really? feel that still way. You still feel that way? Yeah. <laughs> no way. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, For that, those of you who don't know, Duncan Watts is a university professor at Pennsylvania. And university professor is a capital U and capital P which I think there's only like 20 of them in the entire university. This is one of the best universities in the world. There are only a few dozen people. And the way university professorships were described to me is you're basically a department of yourself, right? You are a department. You get to do whatever the hell you want. And yet, and yet you still feel that and way. And yet I still suffer from all those things because I'm always doing stuff where I feel uncomfortable, where I'm, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone. And 
at this point, I've been doing it for long enough that I am comfortable in my discomfort. Um, like I sort of know that nothing terrible is going to happen because I felt this way like a thousand times before and it's always okay. Um, and also because you have a but, paper that has 47,000 citations. So you've got a record like, of doing stuff like that things. helps. Yeah. People can say, well, you know, it, he's done this. I am sure yeah. that my colleagues in different departments look at me sometimes and think, I don't know, like, what is this guy doing here? Like, yeah. he doesn't really know the things that we yeah. know. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, I anticipate that they're going to think that and I'm okay with it. And I just feel like, well, I'm, you know, they let me be here. So I'm going to let them let me be here. Um, uh, but it, it's, you know, not, it's a difficult, I think this is, you know, if I have a skill, it's that. It's like being okay with that, right? right. Um, and, uh, but it takes effort for me, you know, constantly to, to sort of, you know, uh, to, uh, to, to sort of operate in that way. And I think it's not for everyone, right? That there are a lot of people who would just rather get good at something and then just do that. Right. And it's totally fine. Right. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think this is a better way to be, but I think if you want to like keep changing and keep doing new things, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. Um, uh, I'm going to push back on that one. I think your way of being probably is a better way if we're trying to make progress. Like if we're happy with everything in the world, mm -hmm. happy with the state of knowledge, happy with the state of politics, then by all means, let's not get out of our comfort zone. But I think, if we want to create change, and, and this is a podcast about change, I think the model you're setting out is a good one. I mean, but, is there anything personally you do to prepare yourself for like, like when you were a young grad student mm. and you're going to go talk to an entomologist, and mm. I imagine you probably didn't too much know too much about entomology at the time. Like, what do you do to prepare? I mean, are you meditating beforehand? Are you working out? Are you listening <laughs> to rock music? I mean, what is it that allows you to? I go mean, talk I had already this? been doing a bunch of that stuff. But, you know, remember <laughs> I like went and joined the Navy, and That's then I true. left, and you know, so I was sort of, um, just. I mean, I think that was part of my personality. I was just like, um, you know, I, I, I was okay with not knowing what I was doing, okay. right? Um, and. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how I became like that. Um, but um, it wasn't something that I, you know, I don't, I don't remember where I, where, where I sort of learned that lesson. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I was always sort of enamored the, of this idea of the beginner's mind, you know, that Albert Einstein talked about that, um, that you can like, if you come to a problem with the sort of unencumbered by, uh, you know, all of the assumptions and accreted knowledge that you have as an expert, uh, you you can sometimes make a contribution that other people would find hard to make. Now, after many years of being an academic, I I think that idea was was that I had was a little naive that, that you know you can not every beginner has something useful to offer, um, but it was helpful to me at the time uh, to to say well you know I may not know much about this but like I feel like I could contribute something. Um, but honestly, I, you know, I don't know how, you know, if, if you're not somebody who's like that intrinsically, I don't know how you make yourself like that. Um, uh, and, you know, I think you're right that in order for change to happen, some people have to be like that. Yeah. But I don't think it's true that everybody has to be like that, right? I mean, I think, so there's this notion uh, in uh, organizational science, or actually in, in, in optimization theory in general about explore-exploit, right? That, that um uh, that when you're solving problems, uh, you have to, or innovating, or, or you know, training a machine learning algorithm, or whatever it is that you're doing, 
you have to do a certain amount of uh, of uh, you know exploring, which is sort of you know picking random parts of the space to learn about things that you don't already know, and then a certain amount of exploiting, which is just like really getting good at particular things, right? And if you only ever exploit, you never find the interesting things, right? So if you want to innovate and you never explore, you don't innovate, right? You just keep doing the thing that you already know how to do. But it's also true that if you only ever explore, then you never get good at anything, right? So that's sort of a dilettante is somebody who just is like, well, I dabble in this and I dabble in that. And they look like they're very innovative because they're always running all over the place, but they never contribute anything because they, they never really sort of dig in and figure out how to do anything. And so I think you know, the sort of person you're imagining is someone who has this, uh, who's like, has a, somewhere in the middle, right? You pick off, I mean, <laughs> and unfortunately, like many problems in, in social science, you can, you can reject the two extremes as being unhelpful and conclude that, in fact, what you should do is something in the middle. But that doesn't really help you decide where in the middle to be, yeah. right? So it's sort of very hard to know like what the trade-off should be. And presumably, it depends on the context and all kinds of other things. Yeah. But I think you know, as an individual facing a situation like that, just like having a language to talk about it yeah. and saying, well, you know, maybe I should do a little less exploiting and a little more exploring. Uh, you know, might sort of help some people to to change their behavior. Yeah, this actually reminds me of a, a lesson that you taught me last time we spoke when you were still at Microsoft mm -hmm. Research about the layers of an onion. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this metaphor you gave me. Because I was asking, well, how do I get more people to get committed, to yeah. get active for a yeah, movie? Yeah. And one of the things you said is, well, not everyone's got to be active. Right. They don't have to right. be at the front lines. Yeah. It's like the layers of an onion. Yeah. Because you've got all these, a well-functioning movement is like a well-functioning organism. Mm -hmm. And there are different biological functions mm -hmm. in an organism. There's different sociological functions mm -hmm. in a movement. Yeah. And so there are going to be some people who just share something on Facebook. And there's going to be a lot more of them, frankly, than the people mm -hmm. out there on the front lines investigating a factory farm. But those people provide protection mm -hmm. and almost like a lattice, a, a structure, mm -hmm. a framework mm -hmm. from which you can build mm -hmm. the, four, the more hardcore exactly. frontline activists. Yeah. And you're saying something similar about just intellectual inquiry, right. that right. there can be an allocation, there can be some explorers, and you were saying the individual should be somewhere in the middle, but I'm also imagining you could have some explorers yeah, and some Division of labor, exactly, yeah, absolutely. I think that's so exactly maybe, maybe right. right. I, I, so yeah. I take your point very well, and you're probably right, that there's a lot of value in both approaches. And it actually reminds me of something I read about machine learning. I know nothing about machine yeah. learning. Machine learning was barely even a field when I was right, a grad right. student. But I learned recently that Effective machine learning algorithms, which machine learning algorithms are these artificial intelligence algorithms that have been tremendous. I mean, still not nearly as good as mm -hmm. the human mind, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that too. But still tremendous at doing things like, you know, beating somebody at Jeopardy, winning mm -hmm. games in chess. I think there's recent machine learning algorithm that beat the world's best League of Legends players, and mm -hmm. that to me is unbelievable because mm -hmm. League of Legends is not the sort of discreet game that chess mm -hmm. is. And I'm, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're a gamer, but it's just mind blowing mm -hmm. that a video game. I didn't, I didn't know about the League of Legends. Yeah, itself. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's a strategically complex yeah. game. That's yeah. not, it's, it's not like yeah. there, there aren't discrete options. It right. just feels. I mean, obviously on some level it has to because it's, yeah. it's a digital construct that, right. at root, it's all zeros and ones. But still, the, the complexity of that right. game is so far beyond chess. Right. And I think machine learning. But, but the thing I read about machine learning, which I, I, I don't know if this is true. I'm not a machine learning expert, but I think it's true is that machine learning algorithms have to have both, obviously, the obvious thing machine learning algorithm has is optimization. It's mm -hmm. always trying to optimize. But what they found is that the machine learning algorithms that are best in complex scenarios also have kind of an intrinsic preference 
for newness. Mm -hmm. They need to have some novelty, yep. like that explore mentality. Yep. yep. So they're still optimizing and you yeah. kind of just taking the data set, no, the, the training data, it's like, and constantly it, pumping out first it, order, second order conditions. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and I think in you know in machine learning algorithms, the the explore exploit trade-off is actually very explicit. Yeah. It's usually it's like a parameter yeah, is yeah. like you something that you pick yeah. that determines, you know, how, how much randomness you are willing to uh, and what type of randomness you're willing to introduce into your into your exploration. Uh, to uh, to explore different parts of the space. So so yes, it, it's a it's a very generic problem that comes up in you yeah, know in, in in sort of mathematical optimization, but also in you know organizations and innovation and even in your own life. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and I think the the same you know there's a, a famous theorem called the no free lunch theorem, uh, which is that um, uh, that uh, you know there's no one choice of parameters that works for everything, mm. right? So there is in fact no best trade-off between explore and exploit. It yeah. always depends on, on the context. context. Interesting, okay. Well, let's move away from the meta level because we've okay. thought a lot about, and just <laughs> you've done a lot of thinking about thinking mm. and talking about thinking, but we haven't discussed what you've actually thought mm. and the implications of it. And I want to go back to this Small World Networks paper and, and some of the computational mm. sociology you've done since then and, and ask you what you think the biggest implications are for people who are doing social change. And I'm going to throw one thing out there. This is what I've drawn mm. from your work that I try to share with everybody I talk to, and that is that everyone can be an influencer. Mm -hmm. right? the, the law of the few, the Malcolm Gladwell approach from the tipping point has been, I don't want to say completely discredited because this is social science and it's always mm -hmm. complex, but it seems like most dramatic social changes are often spread from ordinary people mm -hmm. and not just famous celebrities. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's one of the lessons from your, your theories and your research? Yes, well, so I, I think you know the the thing that was that was attractive about the you know the Malcolm Gladwell uh, law of the few, uh, which turns out to be wrong, I think, uh, is uh, is that you can get the impact of a massive celebrity from an ordinary person, right? And uh, and not to say that can't happen, but it doesn't happen predictably, okay. right? So you know it's interesting to sort of follow this uh, this uh, literature on influences. Because when I started writing about it, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, you know, I was, you know, pushing back on this idea that if you just find these sort of, you know, handful of ordinary seeming people, they will change the world for sure. you. But they're they're um, extremely connected because they're hubs and social networks. You know, they're, but in yeah, very sort of non-obvious way. So, yeah, yeah. you know, in fact, if you go back and read the influencer literature from that time, it's very explicit that it's not about celebrities. Yeah, that's right. right. So okay. if you go back so even before Gladwell, yeah. sort of Keller and Barry... Uh, influences book, uh, you know, they, they, the very first chapter, they're like, this is, these are not the people that you're thinking of. This is not the president of the United States. This is not Oprah Winfrey. This is not, you know, sports stars. These are just ordinary people, right? And so that was sort of the, the magic that got everybody, you know, the marketers and everybody so excited. They're like, oh, wow, I can just go find a bunch of ordinary people. But if yeah, they're just the right ordinary dollars. people, they will, they yep, will yep. like spread things like wildfire. Okay. Um, now fast forward to you know 2021 when we talk about influencers, they're celebrities. You know they're they like yeah, people they on TikTok with three million followers, right? Like so basically you're just right back to the old days of buying an audience, right? That you're like you just you want to find the people who have the most followers on Twitter or TikTok or or, or Instagram, and you just think about the however many million people are following that person. So now the network has totally disappeared, yeah. right? So none of this stuff about social epidemics that was that made the Gladwell theory so attractive. It's just like, buy your audience. Mm -hmm. 
um, and you might as well buy a TV ad um, as you know as as hire an influencer. So, ironically, I find the new version of the influencers hypothesis pretty plausible because it's pretty, it's pretty well. You know, it's just it doesn't assume very much, right? Yeah. It's just like if you have more people of the right sort listening to you, uh, you'll have more impact, right? Um, and if you're trying to do things in a way that is predictable, then it makes sense, right? You but you 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 have a bigger audience, you have more influence, and so you 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 somebody should be willing to pay you more money to have access to that audience. Just like, you know, if you want to advertise, you know, Ford trucks, you advertise in the Super Bowl because you just want to get the biggest, most generic audience that you can get, right? So it makes perfect sense that people spend more money to advertise in the Super Bowl than they do on some like niche like local program so that's all fine but um it doesn't mean that's the only way that change happens right and i think that um you know if you're a sort of a, a marketer and you're just trying to you know sell jeans or you know makeup it probably makes perfect sense to like use influences or or uh or media mm -hmm. but you know if you're trying to change culture like I mean, I think actually we're like, we're learning that, you know, it's pretty hard to change people's minds about things yeah. just by advertising. So, you know, public health people have been worried about this for a long, long time, you know, going back to the 1990s and the AIDS epidemic, uh, you know, trying to get people to adopt same, you know, safe sex practices just by putting ads on television didn't work very well, right? Putting up billboards and saying, you know, use a condom didn't work very well. Right, so uh, probably having someone on TikTok do it won't work very well either. So you know, I think that is one reason why uh, you know these you know when we do see sudden dramatic social change, it's so mysterious, right? Because it didn't happen in in this way, right? It doesn't happen in the intuitive way where somebody just bought an ad and you know played it over and over again. And suddenly everybody changed their minds, right? So if you look at um, you know attitudes towards same-sex marriage that have changed dramatically over the last 20 years in America, um, nobody really knows how that happened, right? But probably it was sort of a you know a a, a, a much more sort of piecemeal process where individual people were sort of coming out to their to their families and to their friends and to their co-workers and you know every time somebody did that you know a few other people had the realization oh like yeah like this is a good person i love this person like maybe i should think about my feelings about this um and it wasn't like there was one event where some famous celebrity i mean there were famous celebrities who came out and that probably helped too but it, it, it happened much more in this sort of onion sense, like at many different layers, uh, there were, uh, you know, that were sort of self uh, mutually reinforcing. Uh, and, you know, at some point it just became very difficult to stand up and say, I think gay people are bad, yeah. right? I mean, actually, amazingly, some people still say that, yeah. but uh, but the vast majority of Americans have changed their minds. Yeah. And then, of course, it got enshrined by the Supreme Court. So that also helps things along. But, you know, I think, you know, this sort of multi-level process where things are happening at 
you know, the level of individual, ordinary individuals interacting with each other through their social networks, and then they're happening in sort of semi-public ways, and then public ways, and institutional ways. Like that's, um, you know, that is sort of observationally how we see these things happen. Um, the trick, of course, is how do you make it happen? Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't have any answers to that. No, I don't think anybody does. <laughs> you know, one one kind of conceptual framework that I found useful is from one of your colleagues, Damon Santola. Uh -huh. I'm sure you know him. Yep. And just the, and it sounds like what you're describing to me is the difference between simple and complex contagion. Right? Simple contagions are things that are easily transmittable. Mm -hmm. Don't don't require too much cost, you know, or energy mm -hmm. to transmit from mm -hmm. one node to the next. Like, you know, just news about Trump's latest absurdity, mm -hmm. or, um, mm -hmm. or or a discount mm -hmm. for a Big Mac. You can mm -hmm. easily see it on the news and say like, oh, it's two ninety nine instead of three ninety. I should go mm -hmm. buy a Big Mac. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's mm -hmm. not costing me anything. Mm -hmm. anything I'm, mm -hmm. I'm gaining something from it. And Sintola points out that when you're talking about complex contagion, mm -hmm. like changing my belief systems, mm -hmm. letting black people into my community, mm -hmm. um, giving women more rights with mm -hmm. as a man, that's a little harder. And mm -hmm. for complex contagion, I, two insights that I think I've drawn from his work and from yours are one, that oftentimes this starts in the periphery. Mm -hmm. and, and second, that it's not the sort of thing that you can just expose people to once and it just magically transmits, mm -hmm. but it, it requires almost multiple applications. Mm -hmm. It's like mutual reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think this relates to the small world research you've done, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. because obviously it's your research and mm -hmm. not mine, is because if you have these really cliquish groups mm -hmm. in the periphery, that are mutually enforcing mm -hmm. and a lot of clustering in these yeah. groups. And you're going to get a lot of this mutual application, mm -hmm. mutual mm -hmm. reinforcement as something like gay rights. And I think this is kind of what happened. I mean, mm -hmm. um, Donnie Moss, this activist I know who is a gay rights activist in the late 80s and early 90s, mm -hmm. I should say, he was in many ways, even though he's a gay man himself, he was in many ways a gay rights opponent mm -hmm. because he was working for a big pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. that was jacking up the prices of protease inhibitors at a time when thousands of people were dying mm -hmm. from this, right? But he's told me about how Back then, there was this place called the New York LGBT Center, mm -hmm. like this marginal group of people who mm -hmm. all kind of hid who they were, but they all came together mm -hmm. in this physical space, mm -hmm. and they just kind of reinforced each other. Mm -hmm. We got to come out. Mm -hmm. We're all dying, mm -hmm. you know? And so, like, it wasn't just one person mm -hmm. telling you, hey, you should probably come out. It's like, are you out of your mind? I'm mm -hmm. going to get fired. My parents are going to disown mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to be friends with so many people. They're mm -hmm. going to hate me. But when you're in this marginal community that mm -hmm. in many ways is disconnected mm -hmm. from the rest of the world, and you're getting not just one person, but you're mm -hmm. seeing all these other people. There's another gay guy here. There's a gay guy mm -hmm. here. They're mm -hmm. all out. And mm -hmm. why, why can't I do this? And so, and that was like a small world, mm -hmm. right? It was like a clustered mm -hmm. group of people mm -hmm. that even though they're clustered and mostly just relating mm -hmm. to each other because they're all in the closet, mm -hmm. they're also because of the work you know, you've done, or mm -hmm. not because of the work you've done, but mm -hmm. your work has shown this, able to influence everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. Because what started... In that LGBT center mm -hmm. in New York, mm -hmm. when the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. was killing thousands of people, spread within a couple decades to the mm -hmm. entire planet. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you think that's right? Do you think it is the case that a lot of these more complex contagions start in the periphery? Would you agree with Sintol on that? Well, so, you know, I, I have a, um, a in perhaps not surprising, a little more like complicated view of how things work. Um, but I would say, you know, so... I would say we don't really know which things are complex contagions and which things are simple contagions. I think that, you know, what we do know is that diseases are simple contagions, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, so, you know, if, uh, you know, if I have, you know, uh, you know, COVID and, you know, you come into contact with me, you have some probability of getting it from me. 
uh, and then if we come into contact again tomorrow, you have the same probability of getting it from me, right? So there's no, it doesn't remember that we met yesterday, right? But if I'm trying to convince you of an argument, right, and I try today and I don't succeed, and then I try again tomorrow, the fact that I tried yesterday actually has some influence on whether you're likely to, to change your mind. So, so, some, so some contagions have memory uh, and, and, and others don't. And so that's sort of a rough equivalent to you know, what, what uh, Damon means by sort of simple versus complex. And so for simple contagions, uh, it's, it's true that just a few of these random shortcuts is enough to make things spread. So, um, uh, and so that's what we see with these models of, of disease spread. And that's what we see with real diseases, yeah, you know, right they just spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but once things uh, become more, you know, once, once you sort of have this sort of multi-hit process where you have to hear something, you know, many times, possibly from many different sources, um, then you then you get back to a version of this explore exploit problem, right? Where if you you know in the in the world that you just described, if you have like a little clique of people, they can do pretty well at sustaining a new a novel idea, right? But it can't spread, right? It just sort of gets stuck inside that little community. By contrast, if you have a very sort of you know diffuse, expansive network where everybody's got lots of different friends all across, uh, uh, you know, all across different. Uh, parts of society, if something spreads, it'll spread really fast. But it has trouble getting momentum because there's none of these sort of local cycles that help people sort of see the same thing many times, right? And so the trick is to sort of get the, you know, the trick is to have enough like local density so that so that these new ideas can sustain themselves um, and enough um, global connectivity that it can spread. So a very practical, you know, sort of engineering example of this is, um, you know, that we're, that we're talking about a lot right now is how do you get um, people to buy elect uh, electric cars, right? So the biggest problem with electric cars is charging them, right? So, you know, if you have a charger at home, that's great. You can charge your car up every night. You can drive a few hundred miles, but you can't drive across the country, right? Or you can't even drive like upstate without worrying about, um, you know, having to recharge your car somewhere. And you don't want to be so, stopped in upstate. <laughs> Pennsylvania upstate. or New York. I've been so, upstate Pennsylvania. Upstate New York, so, you don't want to be stuck there. So There are a lot of factory farms out yeah. there, and I've been out there quite yeah. a bit. It's a, it's <laughs> no a offense to anyone world. in upstate Pennsylvania or New York. Just kidding. But, but really. um, <laughs> So you want to have charging stations sure. all over the place, yeah. right? But if you're somebody, you know, if you're running a gas station and you're thinking, would I invest in putting an electric car charging station in my gas station and giving up valuable real estate, yeah. I'm only going to do that if enough people are coming in yeah. with electric cars, right? So now you have the problem, right? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. No one's going to buy electric cars until there are enough charging stations. No one's going to build charging stations, stations until there are enough electric cars, yeah. right? So how do you get the thing to spread, right? Yeah. So we have, we have problems like this all the time, like alternative currency is another example of this, right? Um, and so you want to have like, you know, if you're trying to sort of seed innovations like that, you want to be able to pick like, you know, parts of the country where you can sort of solve the problem, you know, on both sides, where you can sort of say, well, you know, here's an area where lots of people have already bought electric cars. You know, why don't we try to sort of build a, a ring of charging stations around them so that people who are further away can, uh, can also, um, uh, you know, join the network, right? But if you just like throw charging stations randomly down across America, they'll probably have no impact 
because no one charging station is going to be enough to, um, to generate a cluster of new acquisitions, right? So, you know, I think sort of any kind of shift in, you know, norms or behaviors has, has this sort of flavor where you sort of want to, you know, you, you can't, um, you, you have to have this sort of intermediate density where there's enough kind of local reinforcement to kind of keep the thing that you've, that you've built but enough connectivity to get it to spread to the next place. Yeah, yeah, right? okay. So if, if I were to summarize your take on, on the research, and both your own and others, mm -hmm. it's that you both need a dense enough initial movement mm -hmm. to create momentum, so you need enough of that clustering, enough people reinforcing each other that you get the excitement, you get the energy mm -hmm. level, but then you also need bridges that allow, uh, sufficient bridges that, that take it from this community, whether it's a community of electric car drivers right. or a community of animal rights activists yeah. or a community of animal rights activists that they can reach everyone else out there in the world. Yeah, but it would geographically be geographically yeah, and otherwise yeah. distant from them. Right, but so let me let me be a little more specific, right? Is it is it, you know, imagine you have a community of people who are, you know, animal rights activists and they want to spread their beliefs to a different community. So rather than all of them like throwing out random edges to to 100 different communities, where no no one of them is going to have much impact because they're going to be the only one in that new. They're all community, just going to get drowned right? out. Yeah. If you said instead, oh, let's pick one other community, and yeah. fifty of us will go join okay. that one, right? Yeah. So now you've got you're sort of transporting a critical mass to this new community, and so now everyone in that community is exposed to a whole bunch of, of uh, of uh, you know of, yeah. of, of of people with this yeah. with yeah. this yeah. new idea, right? But if you all go to that community. That's the only community, you know, and that takes you a year, yeah. right? Then, you know, and you only, you know, maybe only 10 of you needed to go to that community. So maybe you could do 10, ten communities, communities like that. Ten each, ten so there's each sort of, the of a, yeah. so here's the, you know, you sort of have to work out the trade-off, right? What's the minimal number of people yeah. that I need to go and be a successful seed in a new community, yeah. right? So now how many of those new communities can I seed? And also I want to pick communities that are sort of somewhat densely connected so that once we get a foothold there, it'll spread within that community and then sort of replicate that over and over again. Is everything in life an optimization problem to you? <laughs> when you walk around, I'm just, I can see the engineer and you're talking where it's just you're, you're thinking about the trade-offs and I can almost see like the math coming out of your mouth right now. But like when you're interacting, if you, I don't know if you have kids, but uh -huh. like when you're well, you, you're someone who's trained. You, you probably that's probably how they taught you at MIT. Well, you know, but I failed yeah. and I yeah. left. So right. apparently, I was not good enough thinking that way. But you know, uh, it it sounds a little um, you know more clinical than sure. I than I than I than I probably am in my everyday life. But yeah. but but kind of yes. Yeah. I think yeah. that's not that's not an unfair characterization. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Yeah. No, I, I admire that a lot. Um, what are the lessons do you think we can draw from your research? That's that's one lesson. And actually, um, I think the concept that Damon Santoli uses is the idea of a wide bridge. And I hadn't actually thought about that mm. before. And just this idea that when you're trying to make something jump from one country to the next, mm. one religion, one community, or even one neighborhood, you know, geographically, mm. you kind of need to make sure your outreach efforts mm -hmm. are more strategic and concerted and focused. There mm -hmm. should be wide bridges. It shouldn't mm -hmm. just be like one person going across. Right. It should be like I, five I mean, or I, 10 or right. 15. Exactly. So yeah. I think what I, you know, he's using different words to describe a similar, Same, similar idea concept, that you want yeah. to have a bunch of people go yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. You know, sometimes in academia, we do this as well. We do the, what we call cluster hires, right? If you want to like, you know, your department wants to like, you know, let's say we wanted to, you know, um, you know, um, make Annenberg the, you know, top communication school for computational social science, right? We might say, 
well, if we just go try to hire one, one person, they might not out. want to come here yeah. because they, you know, they want to mm -hmm. be in the place that's already the best, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but if we say we're going to hire six people, yeah. right? Uh, then, you know, you can tell all those people that you're hiring five other people and they get all excited about being, yep, yep, you yep. know, forming a new group and you sort of rapidly transition a department to be, uh, uh, you know, from, you know, to, to become the best place in the world. Right? That's so, kind of so, actually what happened at Penn, right? <laughs> Is it? I mean, basically. So they, uh, I in, mean, it seems like there's been a lot of sociologists and social networks people Penn's hired recently and it's become a little bit of a, I don't know, epicenter of, of sociology. Well, you know? I'm glad. I'm glad you think that. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. But I don't think we had a like an actual like plus to hire approach okay. like that. But that's a. But that's certainly uh, something that we talk about sometimes. Okay. Um, so you can sort of imagine the same idea in in activism that you know sure. if you're sort of if you have you know kind of an established uh, you know bridgehead somewhere, uh, you might um, uh, you might say okay, so how do we expand beyond this? And you yeah. would sort of do it in this sort of cluster you know, these uh, sending off clusters of people to, to seed new communities. Yeah, yeah, I guess one question about that is, how do you prevent two types of negative reactions? One is, say, within Annenberg, people mm -hmm. feeling like, what are you going out there and pushing all these mm -hmm. new people for? We do good work here. You know, there's going to yeah. be resistance whenever, especially when you're making a concerted mm -hmm. effort in one community, because mm -hmm. it almost makes it seem like you're saying they're better than us, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And the second is the reaction from the other community mm -hmm. you're trying to reach, which mm -hmm. is, you know, this idea that you're taking us over, mm -hmm. you know, Annenberg is trying to poach all of the computational yeah, yeah. sociologists and we should be wary of them because who knows what they're, they're going to do to them all. Maybe they're going to bring them all in mm -hmm. and just shut it all down or it's going to be hostile climate because well, there's all these people who are not computational. So, yeah. so I mean, do you have any thoughts on how you well, avoid yeah, that the, sort of these backlash? Are, these are great points and, you know, w you know, we're sort of, you know, now beyond the limits of what these like simple models can tell us because, of course, you know, this, this happens. Like you yeah. go... Yeah you start going into communities and trying to change people's minds and all kinds of complicated things happen. Um, and, you know, often there's some backlash. Uh, and so, you know, potentially, you know, devoting more energy and pushing harder will be worse than, than doing it sort of slowly. And so, you know, I think, you know, there's not so much that we can say about that, right. Other than that, that's real. And, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, uh, you know, at least until the time where, the social science of these sorts of problems gets a whole lot better than it is right now. Uh, I think there's still, uh, you know, a lot of importance, uh, you know, the, the sort of judgment and expertise and experience of people in the field is, is extremely important, right? That, yeah. you know, that these are you know, people who are, who are, I'm, I'm guessing that people who are experienced activists have a sense yeah. of like when their message when, is when being received well, right? And, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, and what sort of people are going to be receptive. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, so I think, um, uh, I, I think that's, um, you know, that stuff is super relevant. And um, I'll do, we'll just say one other insight that comes from some of our earlier modeling um, when we, when we looked at, we looked at sort of what, uh, what we would now call complex contagion uh, spreading on networks. Um, it was that when we saw these large uh, cascades happening, um, it wasn't because influential, a few influential people were influencing everybody else. Yeah. It was because there were lots of easily influenced people influencing other easily influenced people. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I came up with this notion of the the sort of uh, 
the uh, what we call the percolating vulnerable network. Right. So if you sort of imagine everybody in the population who is who is so complex contagion is when, according to Damon, is when you know you need multiple uh, exposures to adopt. Right. But for some people, they will adopt after one exposure. One right. Yeah. So let's call that person vulnerable, right? And there's a sense that they're or susceptible. They're like susceptible to the message, right? So now this if we is terrible I, optics from an activist perspective, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're going to but, manipulate people. <laughs> well, you want some people. You, well, you, there are definitely. I, I think we, we can we can use different words. I'm just kidding. Like, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, um, you, you can use whatever words somebody, you want. Yeah. Somebody is more or less, let's say, open. Yeah. To your message, right? Yeah. So let's. That's call a them, great, more positive word. Not vulnerable open, or let's manipulable. Let's call them open, open people. <laughs> people who are open to your message, yeah. right? So an open person is someone who, if they you just tell them one time, they're like, oh wow, that's a great idea. I want to do that, right? Yeah. So now imagine all the open people in the world, right? And they're scattered all around the place, but some of them are connected to each other, sure. right? And if you can find a bunch of them that are connected to each other, all you have to do is hit one, And then right? it all blows and up. And then they will yeah. all spread to each other. And now here's the big payoff, right? Is that once they spread to each other, now there's like a network of people who have already bought the idea. They're connected to people who are not open, yeah. right? But those people now have multiple exposures because this it's already spread, right? So if you can find, you know, not networks of open people, yeah. right? Then they it not only spreads to all of them, but it then keeps spreading beyond them because the non-open people now have, you know, it can now spread by a complex contagion yeah. through through the rest of the network. So yeah. So grassroots activists talk about this all the time yeah. in the context of mobilizing people, yeah. and we don't call the people we activate vulnerable. Uh, <laughs> We usually call them our action network, right? Uh -huh. The people who yeah. all you do is send them an email yeah. and they're going to sh shoot out a petition or yeah. organize a protest. It's like yeah. it, it takes very little effort yeah. and suddenly they do some change. They, yeah. they decide, oh, McDonald's, I'm going to boycott them today yeah. because I, uh, you know, and it's, it's complicated. It's a combination of trust, good messaging, mm -hmm. um, relationship history and movement history mm -hmm. of the individual. But some people are just easier to activate than yeah. others. And, and there is something powerful about when you yeah. get a cluster of those. I mean, this is the reason anyone knows my name at this point mm -hmm. because I was part of a network of people who are open mm -hmm. or easily activated mm -hmm. and, and they did activate and mm -hmm. did a lot of really crazy intense but also yeah. beautiful things. Right. Um, do you have any advice on how to create networks like that? I mean, you've seen in the data, this is how I dramatic think you, change happens. I think happens. you have to find them. Yeah. You have to find them. And, and, and that's, you know, that's just an empirical challenge, right? I mean, I think we, 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 we haven't solved that yet, but you know, you, you know, in theory, I could imagine how you would do it. In practice, you know, it would be, you know, it would be hard work of like finding people who are open, who were, uh, who were willing to be activated and then finding their friends who were similar and then finding their friends. So, you know, kind of a contact tracing, uh, like, like they do in epidemiology where they do contact tracing, right? Interesting. Uh, so it's like almost inverse contact tracing where you're trying to find the mm -hmm. people who spread things. Mm -hmm. And put them together <laughs> instead yeah. of quarantining them. Yeah. Let's put them out in the yeah. world. Let's get them together and yeah. then let's spread it everywhere. Huh. But one what final thing I would say is, um, you know, which I think I mentioned to you when we talked back in Microsoft, the, the, uh, which you reminded me of it when you talked about The Onion, the, the, this paper by James Coleman yeah. many years ago about zealots. Zealots and free and, riders. Yeah. And I, it's a very simple paper, but it's very, it's very, it has a very powerful idea in it, which is, and it's related to this. Uh, uh, idea of different activation thresholds that yeah. that you know that there are some people of the world who are who are zealots who are like they're really um, you know they're willing to sort of um, 
give an, a, you know, sort of an unreasonable amount of themselves for a cause, right? Um, and part of why they do that is because they get recognized for it and they get made to feel like heroes. Um, uh, but what's critical to realize is the people who make them feel like heroes don't actually have to do all that much. Yeah. All they have to do is clap, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. All they have to do is say, you know, thank you, you're great. And it's very, it's almost costless to convey yeah. to that sort of praise, yeah. but it's worth a lot to the person who receives it, uh -huh. right? And so you know, this is sort of, I think, a useful notion because it means that you can, if you can find lots of people to do the praising for the few people who do the work, yeah. you can mobilize a lot, a lot of, of energy. People. Yeah, right? and, um, and activate people very quickly. And yeah, I think actually, just sort of recognizing like what types you're dealing with yep. and and what they need uh, in order to um, uh, in order to um, be responsive is is you know is is really powerful. I mean, Wikipedia is another example of a you know an organization that has basically sort of stumbled on this same yeah. rule, which is you know the you know it's a very small number of people uh, compared to the total number of people who like browse Wikipedia who actually maintain the thing, right? All of these editors, like, and they are super devoted. I mean, they spend <laughs> yeah, a lot of time and they, you know, they've developed elaborate rules and, and uh, you know, sort of ethics and, and, and uh, uh, you know, like a whole sort of system of governance uh, that they enforce basically, I think, without pay, yeah. right? Because they believe it's important. Um, and so, you know, if you can sort of... Um, and they and you know they they feel legitimized by the huge number of people who come to Wikipedia and, and find it valuable. So, yeah. so I think that sort of thinking in this sort of layered way about you know I, I need a small number of people who will do a lot of work, and then I need a larger number of people who are going to tell that small number of people we think are awesome, yeah. uh, and then sort of a larger number of people still to sort of validate the um, the whole activity by participating in it. Um, and, and sort of having different strategies for engaging each of those types of people, um, uh, I think is, you know, certainly how I would think about it. Yeah. No, I, I went and read that paper. Jim Coleman is someone whose name I knew very well mm -hmm. because I was a University of Chicago guy mm -hmm. and I was an undergraduate there and he was a legendary sociologist mm -hmm. who actually mm -hmm. did a lot of the things that you did too. I mean, he was someone He was who, a mathematical sociologist. Absolutely. Yeah. He was jumping fields. He was yeah. talking to economists, like one of his best buddies yeah. was yep. an economist named yep. Barry Becker. And yep. They collaborated a bunch. But the other piece of that paper that I found really interesting is one of the really important functions of the zealots was norm enforcement, mm -hmm. you know, preventing free riders from kind of getting mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. And you saw this in the gay rights movement where there are some people like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if you know Larry Kramer's name. Yeah. Larry Kramer was a playwright. But yeah. He was very famous. He was the yeah. founder of ACT UP, this yep. very prominent yep. AIDS, advocacy, and yep. gay rights organization that... He died recently, right? He died. Yeah, yeah. it's really sad. Yeah. But he was... Um, he was famous or infamous, depending on perspective, for pushing people to come out of the closet and mm -hmm. even shaming people who didn't, mm -hmm. recognizing mm -hmm. there's a collective action problem. Mm -hmm. If you're hiding, mm -hmm. you're basically free riding. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, mm -hmm. kind of, you're benefiting from all the work we're mm -hmm. doing because we're making the world a better place for mm -hmm. gay people, but mm -hmm. you're in the closet, and so mm -hmm. you're not bearing any of the cost. And he was a zealot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he would shame people, attack yeah. people, and yeah. say, no, all of us have an obligation. Our baseline yeah. is to come out of the closet. And one of the reasons he was able to do that, Jim Coleman's work yeah. out, is because he got lots of support. Yeah. Even if you were not a Larry Kramer. Yeah. All the people in that room, that same LGBT yeah. center that I was telling you about in New yeah. York, that was the place that Larry Kramer gave his famous speech that right. launched the ACT UP movement. Right, right. When he gave that speech, 
even though he was being very harsh, he said, yeah. you all, you know, there's a plague happening right yeah. now. There is a yeah. plague. Everyone clapped for him. Yeah. Because they all something, they heard something, they yeah. saw something in him that yeah. was true and powerful. Right. And even if they didn't want to be out there coming right. out and telling everyone else mm -hmm. to come out, giving him that support mm -hmm. amplified his voice mm -hmm. and allowed other people to see that and say, mm -hmm. wait a minute, I can be like Larry Kramer mm -hmm. too in my local community, you know? So there's something really powerful yeah, about that. Yeah, there is. And I, it's funny because my, my experience with this is far more prosaic where I used to, I used to take the Acela a lot between, you know, New York and Philadelphia and, and, uh, Is that a train? The Acela, yeah, it's the uh, the Amtrak train. Okay. Uh, it's like the the, the so-called fast train, which okay. is just it's not quite as train. not quite as slow as the other ones. <laughs> yeah. um, but on this train, they had a they had a, one car was the quiet car, right? And in that car was supposed to be a library-like atmosphere. So you weren't supposed to talk on your phone. You weren't supposed to have loud conversations. And so you know, a certain group of people like me would like make a beeline to the quiet cars because we wanted to work, right? And so, of course, when it's very quiet, it doesn't take much to be loud, right? Uh -huh. So it's very fragile, right? Uh -huh. And invariably, there's one person who gets on the quiet car who hasn't read the rules, right? Uh -huh. Even though there's signs everywhere and they make announcements, they're just like, I have no idea what's going on. And they get on their phone and they start talking or they have a loud conversation with the person next door. You're making me feel bad right and now, Duncan, because I think I'm usually that guy. <laughs> well, you probably are not because what happens never is one me. of the zealots. Oh, well, tell you. Because like, everyone's sitting there yeah. and they're like, you know, you can just sort of yeah, yeah. see the steam rising <laughs> off people because, like, everyone's like, oh. And, um, and then, but, you know, most people don't want to say anything, yeah. right? Because it's awkward yeah, and it's you totally look bad and they look bad and they get defensive. Yeah. And, um, but there's usually someone who's like a zealot who's like, and they get up and they walk over and they're like, excuse me, this is the quiet car. And they point yeah. at the sign and they look kind of like a jerk. And the person reacts to them like they're a jerk. And, you know, sometimes it gets a little unpleasant. And you have to be willing to tolerate all of that yeah. to be a zealot. But then the zealot goes and sits down and everyone's like... And everyone's happy. Fist bump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the zealot then feels, like, rewarded. No, it's um, funny. There's a lot of implicit rules like this, too. I, I was on the New York City train system recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I've never lived in a city where I use trains extensively like in the Bay Area, for mm -hmm. example the trains are awful i mean i'd love for them to be mm -hmm. better the bar should be better but it's awful and no one rides mm -hmm. it and it doesn't get you anywhere to go and every time i come to new york my friend lauren who's often on a train with me is always telling me you talk way too loud mm -hmm. <laughs> and too much people mm -hmm. on this crowded train yeah. no one wants to hear your goddamn yeah. conversation you need to shut the heck up so thankfully my zealot is also my good friend right. she tells me shut up we don't talk yeah. like this you don't <laughs> you just don't do this in new york yeah. city everyone's yeah. going to be annoyed yeah. i'm yeah. like oh you're right yeah so it's 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 weird how how that works right um but it does work yeah and it, it does work and, and people do respect yeah. the rules right because you have even if but it's it usually small takes someone who's a little bit obnoxious to enforce yeah. the rules no right? absolutely and, and but, uh, it, but it's important you know they sort of they uh um thinking about this in a different context recently about this you know expression that only like you know reasonable people follow the rules so mm -hmm. so only unreasonable people in some sense affect change yeah. right didn't to, to like really yeah. change something that you like to be you know if you're like trying to get people to stop believing something that they're really attached to you you sort of have to be a bit of an asshole right <laughs> and larry kramer was an asshole he's totally an asshole yeah he's an uh, asshole and and that's like you know, so you may not like the people, yeah. you may not personally like the people who are doing the thing that you like, yeah. right? Uh -huh. um, because if they're nice people, they wouldn't be doing it, yeah. right? Um, so I, I, you know, I try to sort of, you know, sometimes I have these complicated reactions for people that I know who I, 
I like I think they're doing like I think they're right, yeah. but I just don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, I was sort of having this struggle with myself recently. I was like, why is it that I don't like all these people who are like doing wow. stuff that you know, in principle, I would. Why can't nice people do this so I can like them and like their message? And then I realized because they wouldn't do it if they were not like attention-seeking jerks, yeah. right? Um, and so there's a place for people like that. And I think, you know, maybe now I try to sort of focus more on the message yeah. and say, well, I'm just going to accept that they're like that because they probably have to be like that and be happy that they're doing it and be supportive of them even though... I don't actually personally feel warmth yeah. towards them. Do you think uh, there's a little bit of that in you? As someone who's created a lot of change within the academy? Well... Do you consider yourself you, a nice guy or do you consider yourself I, a professional um, person? You would have to talk to other people about okay. that. You know, generally, uh, you know, I think people are, uh, are um, disinclined to say that you're a jerk. Share um, it to your face. And, yeah. uh, I, you know... Yeah, I would like to think that I'm not a jerk. But I, I, I have not but, experienced that in you at all, for the record. I, uh, you've always been an incredibly gentleman, gentlemanly person to me. But there are I probably there are probably some people who don't like the fact that I, you know, bumble into their fields and I mean I, I get them as reviewers from time to time. So I know they don't like it. Um and uh uh so yeah, there's 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 probably people who feel that way about me too. Yeah. All right. Well two other clusters of questions and and, and we'll close, but uh one I wanted to ask you about this paper you wrote a while back about predicting history. Because uh -huh. um, I thought it was a fascinating paper. Uh -huh. Thank you. And yeah, no, and it was, I think it was published in some science journal, right? It's Nature, Human Behavior. Yeah, so how, by the way, how did you as a sociologist end up publishing in so many like hard science journals? Like, it, and it just, that's kind of a strange thing, right? No? So same, same answer. Same answer, just because you're silo, <laughs> I you're just like, out of your silo. Okay. I just like send them the paper. And do people in sociology respect that? I imagine they I have do. never published in an economics journal. Really? Yes, huh. economics is is uh, is too that's hard a, too hard a nut to crack. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. You know some of the good economics journals, and you mentioned I, some. I, of them. I, I even know, I how know many them. There I are. read them sometimes, but uh, <laughs> but it's it's yeah. it, I have not been able to break into that club. But yeah, let's talk about this paper, because um, I think. Well, let me. Why don't you describe the thesis? Well, so tell, it, tell me the thesis so, of this paper and why it might be relevant for activists and people so, are looking at history. Yeah, we're, you know, it's pretty common for for people to say, "Oh, this is an historic moment, right?" So something big happens. Uh, you know, the capital riots. Yeah, the capital riots. Elected, you know, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, um, if we ever sign an infrastructure bill, um, you know, somebody will be like, "This is an historic moment," right? And it's like a little bit of a funny. Uh, thing to say because really what you're saying is you're making a prediction. Yeah. You're saying in the future, people will look back, historians will look back and they will say this, this moment was important. So and if something is an historic moment really only in retrospect. You can't really say at the time that it's happening, this is an historic moment. You can only really say it at some point in the future. You look back and you say, well, you know, the storming of the Bastille, yeah. that was pretty historic, yeah. right? At the time, nobody thought it was historic. They weren't really paying attention at all. Yeah. Right. So they were just storing the Bastille. <laughs> you know, we, we we look back and at uh, Tim Berners-Lee inventing HTML yeah, at CERN true. back in the you know late 1980s, we would say that was historic. But at the time, nobody paid any attention. So, so there are sort of, uh, you know, when we think about historic moments, there's easy. It's easy to think of false positives where people say this is historic. I mean. Literally hundreds of times every week, 
somebody says this is an historic moment. The vast majority of these moments do not persist in history, right? So they are actually not historic moments because we know that looking yeah. back in time, no historians will not remember them, yeah. right? So they will not be historic in, in, the, in, the, in the true definition. Um, the opposite, there's also lots of false negatives, right? That people yeah. like things happen, nobody pays attention. And then only many years later do we look back and say, you know what? That was an historic moment when that thing happened. Nobody knew it, but it was the beginning of the web or it was the beginning of whatever, right? Um, and so I got curious about this uh, as a result of some reading that I did from my book, uh, Everything is Obvious book. I, was, I read some uh, uh, philosophy of history by this guy, Arthur Danto. Um, and, um, you know, he was sort of arguing that it's, it's basically impossible for people to know that something... Is to know the significance, the historical significance of a thing at the time it's happening, right? Uh, and I, I found this to be a very intriguing argument, um, basically because historians evaluate significance in light of everything that happens after that moment, right? So there's the moment that it happens, and then a bunch of stuff happens afterwards, and then at some point later in time, historians say, well, this moment back here was historic, but they can only say that because of all the things that followed it. And of course, you don't know what all those things are at the time that it's happening. So the storming of the Bastille is only historic because it led to the French Revolution, right? But it need not have led to the French Revolution. And if it hadn't, then nobody would care about the storming of the Bastille. Yeah. So you sort of, in order to know that something is historic, you have to know the entire future of things that happen after that point, up until the point where the historian looks back and says that was historic. Yeah. And so D Danto argues that, that it's impossible. You can't do it, even oh. in principle. Um, and so I thought that was a very interesting argument. But also, you can think of examples where people have said, this is an historic moment, and they were right. Like landing on the moon, that was pretty historic. And everybody thought so at the time, and we still think so. Uh, you know, Edmund Hillary summiting Everest, or Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. You know, these are all examples of, of, of instances that have happened in history where people successfully predicted that something was historic. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I was trying to do with this paper is sort of just empirically determine like how good are people at knowing when something is historic and uh, how good could we make a machine learning algorithm uh, predict when something is historic. Oh. And so it's sort of a simple idea. It turns out it's really hard to test because getting the data, you have to have, you know, sort of two sets of labels. So you have to have a whole list of events of things that happened in history. And then you have to have labels from at the time. How important did people think this was at the time? And also labels from the future about how important do people, did people think this was looking back many years. And so the way we solved this problem was to use um, a couple of interesting uh, data sets from the State Department. Oh. So the first one is uh, 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 millions of cables, like diplomatic cables written uh, by uh, members of the diplomatic corps uh, during the 1970s. Uh, and then, uh, and, and we used by looking at the labels on those cables, we could make a constructive measure of how important the person writing the cable thought the thing they were writing about was, right? Um, 
And uh, which is tricky because diplomatic language doesn't say things like this is an historic moment. So there was no sort of dead giveaways. We had to sort of construct this measure um, from other kinds of signals. Uh, and then the second data set was uh, these, um, uh, these volumes that are written by State Department historians called the FRUS volumes, the uh, F-R-U-S, which stands for the Foreign Relations of the United States. So many years later, historians go back and sift through all of the documents available, including the cables, uh, and they pluck out the ones that they think are really important, and they put them in these special volumes. So if, you, if, some, if a cable got put into Frus, you know, 20, 30 years later, we would say, okay, somebody thinks that's historic, right? And so the question is, if you use, so now you train your machine learning algorithm to say, given what uh, people thought at the time, you know, how good a prediction is that of what people, uh, how good a prediction is it of what people would think in the future? And mostly we found support for Danto, right? That, that you know, even though there were clearly examples where they were consistent, um, it, 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 um, the performance, uh, you know, got really uh, declined rapidly as the size of the, the collection grew. So, so basically, you know, the whole process is dominated by these false negatives that you, that there's, there's just too many things happening to keep track of it. And, you know, one of those, you know, a million things happen and one of them is historic, the chances are you'll miss it. You'll miss it. Um, So when you you say it was dominated by false negatives, for those of you listening who don't understand the terminology, it basically means they were missing really important events. You didn't say something that... You, you know, the negative turned out to be you didn't really, give really it a label important. and you should have yeah. given it a label. Whereas the false yeah. positive is where you say it's historic yep. and yeah, yeah, yeah. it isn't. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I, I, want, I still want to ask my last question. Okay. But you, you said something that is, is making me want to ask you another question about your process because uh-huh. I don't think there are too many hard scientists and, and certainly not physicists or engineers who obtain hypotheses from people like Danto. So, or even, you know, you were saying you read economics journals. Mm-hmm. So is there, is there some practice that you have of constantly exposing yourself to historians and economists and philosophers? Like, what is, what is your reading style? And mm-hmm. what, is, what, is, what, what, would, what advice would you give someone to, if they just wanted to go out there and say, I want to be the sort of person uh-huh. who can pick up a hypothesis from some random another field and deploy it in my field in a very powerful way, what, what, what would you tell them? Well, I mean... These days we have Google Scholar, so you know you just type in a phrase, and <laughs> it just gives you everything. everything. And across all different you can fields. easily yeah. go and read across fields, right? Yeah. And I I would submit that like any non-trivial problem in the social sciences, and will you know psychologists will have studied it, sociologists will have studied it, economists will have studied it. So you do this intentionally. You say to yes. yourself, okay, I, th- I'm interested in. Yeah whether we make good historical predictions about uh-huh. the significance of events, I'm going to go read historians, economists, mm-hmm. sociologists, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I used to have more time when I was young. Sure. And so I did it much more systematically, you know, and, you know, when I was doing my uh, early work on, you know, on, on uh, you know, influence cascades, like I really like sat down and read, you know, the sort of key papers in econ and sociology and, yeah. and psychology and so on. Uh, and was like constantly amazed at how little they had to say to each other, right? (laughs) That you sort of have all of these people who are like, say they're studying the same thing, but like beyond the words in the title, uh, 
and you know perhaps a handful of motivating examples they were totally different um and so i was you know that i think has provided a lot of motivation to me over the years that i i want to sort of you know try to bridge some of those gaps um nowadays i don't have as much time to read but i still like try to to sort of you know i'm doing a research project now on common sense right and so we're reading political philosophy and ai and um uh you know psychology right so the whole like you know just totally you know if you read the ai literature on common sense it's like has absolutely nothing in common with the you know political philosophy or history version of common it's sense. It's not even the same language, right? No. I mean, it's so just it's like <laughs> they're asking different questions, sure. they're using different formalisms, and so it's like really kind of. Yeah. I mean, you can see why people don't do it, right? Because it's like you have to like do a lot of work to try to figure out connections between things that are not themselves trying to connect to each other, yeah. right? Um, but hopefully, you come up with something different. That is, you know, that that is, you know, novel that that people haven't come up with before. Um, that uh, you know, that speaks in some way to to both or, or multiple communities. So that's, you know, that at least is the. Of course, the downside is it might not speak to any of them. Yeah. Right. Okay. So here's my last question, and I, I've been wondering this for a while, because you said some things in our last uh, conversation that made me wonder, uh, both in terms of the substance and just your prediction mm-hmm. of where the future will take us. What is your opinion of the animal rights movement? I'm just curious. Like, what um, do you think of it? And where do you think it's going? As um, someone who's outside of it. I mean, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about it. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of loath to, um, you know, offer strong opinions. I, um, you know, I feel a little bit guilty because I, you know, I eat meat, huh. uh, uh, and I and I enjoy eating meat. Um, I try to as- assuage my guilt by only eating meat that is sort of rated at the sort of you know top level of um, you know environmental sustainability. So you know we sort of, which sort of effectively reduces to buying the most expensive version of everything <laughs> that we can find. So you just you know go to the supermarket and find the most expensive eggs because they tend to be the ones that are like you know you know, hopefully at least are produced on small farms and, and where birds are allowed to, you know, we look for free range, we look for, you know, uh, uh, you know, antibiotic free, all this sort of stuff. So, um, but, you know, my, my wife is mostly vegetarian and so we eat a lot more, you know, I eat a lot more vegetarian food. And I, you know, I have no argument against the sort of, uh, you know, it would be better for the planet if we like almost exclusively ate yeah. vegetables and, and not... Um, uh, and not animals. Um, I certainly have no argument against uh, the mistreatment of animals in industrial uh, agriculture, which I think is horrifying. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I think it's important. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of not a, I'm not an animal rights activist myself, and uh, you know, the world is complicated, and there's lots of problems to fix. And you know, that's sort of not been my part of ship um but i um uh but it's sort of one of those things where i think oh you know i probably really should care more about this um because yeah. it's like you know i mean i i have no sort of uh uh you know you know i think 
you know, I'm not sure what my feelings are about mistreating animals versus mistreating humans, but I certainly think that we should be trying not to mistreat anything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any predictions for the movement? What do you think if you had to predict? I guess this is one of those hard questions that you can't, you can't answer. Because Ezra Klein just wrote a op-ed yeah. a few months ago about the end of meat and a future yeah. about meat. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have been predicting that for sustainability yeah. reasons. And, and I talked to another guy, actually another Aussie, Saul Griffith. Yeah. Do you know him? No. He's a MacArthur Grant winner. He's working on solar energy in yeah. California. And yeah. he's been pushing hard local solar and thinks yeah. that local solar can basically solve right. the energy problems. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I believe it. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's, Batteries he's an plus, engineer. Yeah. Absolutely. Once we improve battery yeah. technology. And yeah. So Put solar cells on your roof and a battery in your everywhere. basement and you don't need and the grid good. anymore. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's made a similar point, but he also thinks that we move towards sustainability. Meat is going to be the last thing to go because of how entrenched it is mm-hmm. and how difficult it is, frankly, to fo- form the sort of networks that your research mm-hmm. tells us we need to mm-hmm. build mm-hmm. to create change. So I, I don't know. What's your prediction? Well, look, I mean, I think some of these new um, non meat meat options are pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I, you know, honestly, like I would be, you know, I, I'm happy to, you know, I love to have a good steak from now, now, now and again, but that would be enough, yeah. right? I wouldn't have to, you know, I don't eat it every day. I don't need to eat it every week. You know, I could, I could easily consume a lot less meat than, than I do. And I consume a lot less meat now than I used to. Yeah. Um, so personally, I can see myself going into a mostly, mostly meatless future, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sort of tempted to sort of pull a Steven Pinker and say, well, you know, over the long run, these things, you know, get better. And, you know, there's a sort of a moral force to the argument that's irresistible in the same way that we see, uh, you know, gay rights and human rights sort of, you know, steadily advancing over the millennia. We should see animal rights also. But as we also know, that progress really only happens over the long haul. Right. And there's lots of, uh, you know, sort of reversals along the way. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe the greatest danger to uh, to animal rights is sort of, you know, uh, you know, um, developing countries who are getting richer and people are saying, I want to eat more meat now. So you have, a, you know, a billion people in India who suddenly decide they want to eat more meat. Um, that could offset, you know, everything else. So, yeah, right. so I think there's, you know, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of uncertainties uh, on the global scale. Um, I, I certainly hope that the intuition about the sort of, you know, you know, the rights, you know, civil rights, mm-hmm. kind of moving, you know, however gradually and 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 fitfully, uh, in in the direction of greater inclusivity, will yeah. will eventually include animal rights as well. But, um, you know, given how, given how like, difficult it has been to, like, even, like, advance the rights of black American humans, you know, like, yeah, you know, that is just so, you know, we've learned so much, I think, you know, those of us who, who were paying less attention than we should have been uh, have learned so much in recent years, thanks to, you know, sort of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, you know, the, the 1619 Project and other sort of really great awareness-raising activities just sort of how horrifying it has been for so long. Um, so I think, you know, these are, these are incredibly challenging uh, um, yeah. problems to take on. And I'd say data scientists had a role in that too. I mean, some of the most compelling stuff to me is just some of the data collection mm-hmm. of mass incarceration and outcomes that mm-hmm. people are incarcerated. Because when you're incarcerated, it changes the trajectory of your life. 
It's a really and good it's, point. It's a strange thing yeah. that we've done yeah. so much damage to so many people for so little gain. Yeah. And other data scientists have pointed out, like Steve yeah. Levitt did a study on incarceration yeah. showing that longer sentences don't actually deter crime. So we're doing yeah. it for no reason at all. You know, we're putting all these people in prison for so long and I, not much social gain. I, I think that's a really good point. And some of my colleagues, you know, my colleague Dean Knox here at, at Penn and, and Sherai Goyle at, at Harvard are, are doing great work on, on uh, you know, data science around policing. Yeah, uh, cool. And I think, yeah, so some of it is is really, you know, I think, you know, we talk about data and as, as if it's a very sort of a dry and, uh, you know, heartless uh, activity. But you sort of think about it as just making stuff visible, yeah. right? And so I think that, uh, you know, we sort of believe that, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah. And so I think, like, if you are trying to get people, if what people are doing is indefensible yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you can make them see it, then maybe they will stop trying to defend it, yeah. right? Now, even that doesn't always work. We're seeing that with COVID right now. People's you know, spouses are dying and they're still like refusing to get vaccinated. So like cognitive dissonance is also a tough thing, but it's like definitely, it definitely seems like a thing, a place to start is that if just by measuring things, just by making it uh, impossible to look away, yeah. uh, I think uh, that can certainly help. There you have it. Data is going to save the world, my friends. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Duncan. Do you have any final tips, suggestions? Oh, no. <laughs> You've said a lot. If there's like well, actually two hours of talking, yeah. Well, is there yeah. one thing that you you'd say people should remember from this conversation, from your perspective as a social scientist? What should non-social scientists know about social science when they go out there and try and create change? I I mean, I, for me, it's about modesty, modesty, right? Epistemic, what we call epistemic modesty. Yeah. That. Uh, you know, I wrote a whole book about this. Everything is obvious once you know the answer that, that we sort of think Great we book. know much more about the world than we actually do. And, uh, you know, and, you know, again, I, I don't want people to feel paralyzed and, and unable to act uh, because they don't know everything. Um, but I think understanding how little you know is a good place to start. Yeah, you're right. Good. Thank you. Appreciate your time, Duncan. My pleasure. Hope you all enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. And big thank you and shout out to Duncan Watts because he's a really busy guy, as you heard in the podcast. But also want to just send tremendous gratitude to the entire team, especially since, you know, as I said, I could be in hiatus for the next few years. First and foremost, Lonnie, I, I don't even know how to describe you. You're an amazing guy and you've helped me so much over the last almost 10 years of my life and everyone deserves friends who believe in them as much as you believed in me and I'm just so grateful for everything you've done on this podcast and frankly for the past 10 years. Julie Waldrop and Crystal Heath have helped out with all sorts of things from social media promotion to editing. Priya Sahani has edited some podcasts. Louis Bernier has helped record some and then Shalo. Shalo is a one-person marketing team. I don't know if anyone would even hear this podcast without Shalom. So Shalom, I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything. And then finally, all of you. The last and, and maybe most important person I should thank is you for listening. And I don't know what's going to happen next week at trial. I don't know when you're going to hear from me again. I do know it's been an amazing run, and I'm just so happy to have provided maybe a little bit of insight into your life. So if you enjoyed this podcast or any of the others, share it with a friend and stay tuned. Because regardless of what happens, it's going to be interesting, and I want to hear from you again. Thanks.